I went down there because um, my my grandmother uh, and my godfather told me to get the hell out of Chicago. It was like, um, you can't stay here. You're a teenager. Um, and, you know, I mean, 18, 19. But in Chicago, everybody was dying. Teenage males were just straight dying. And so um, it was just the violence. And so they were like, you got to get out of here. Once we were told that this guy was going to pretty much give us a countdown, I was on the entry team, uh, slamming the door to get the team in. Uh, we get the go-ahead, we start breaching the door, I start slamming the door. So the guy is shooting as I'm slamming the door. It was already too late. But that was a, a heck of a moment because there were so many other things I think we could have did. And that was, in my opinion, a failure for our team. Um, it, and that's not opinion, it, it, we failed. The real meat and potatoes of our job is saving someone's life that absolutely cannot do it themselves or the, the situation causes that only a select few can make this happen. That's when it's time to come to work. That's when you really get this thing in. And if you don't do that, you failed. What are you here for? And that's how the team felt. I mean, it was that was a tough one for us. I drove home and, um, you know, I didn't cause any damage, but I realized at that point that uh, I was about to throw away my career. I woke up and realized that I could have just lost everything, that I risked everything, everything for my family, right? Because work is one thing, but not providing for my kids is another. And I, I, I had a real hard time with that. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. When you get what you want in your struggle for self, and the world makes you king for a day. Just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. He's the fellow to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear to the end and you've passed your most difficult, dangerous test if the man in the glass is your friend. You may fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartache and tears if you cheated the man in the glass. Welcome back, ATL family. This is Joe King. I'm with the great Danny Canetti and Kent Wolverton. You've just heard my favorite poem, The Man in the Glass. Today's story is about a man who climbed to the Dallas PD mountaintop at a young age learned from Dallas SWAT legends, and then formed his own path and reputation and is now one of the most respected leaders 
Dallas PD has on its roster. This man has been successful at everything he's done in life, from being an incredible athlete, becoming an exceptional SWAT operator, and then become a supervisor over that same unit. However, one day in January, he looked into the glass and did not like what he saw, and he knew he was ready to climb yet another mountain in life to find a different kind of success. He carefully typed a message and hit send. After he got a response, he knew that the mountain to climb was real, and he just took his first step. Sergeant Andre Taylor, Dallas SWAT, welcome to the ATL stage. Thank you, thank you. Uh, also a guest co-host is Sergeant Brian Candelaria. He, uh, he came back for more punishment, and uh, he, wants to, he, ha- he has a unique perspective, and uh, he worked with Sarge, and he wants to, uh, wants to sit in and uh, watch this event. You ready to get into this? I guess so. Let's get it. All right, let's get it over. Hey, it's like we're going to start off slow. It's like pulling off a scab very slowly. Mm-hmm. I think you said a Band-Aid. Not, yeah, yeah, like, Band-Aid. Let's not turn them into a scab picker right off the bat. Okay, we'll do the Band-Aid and then rip off the scab. <laughs> okay, all right. I want to talk about your early life. Uh, where'd you grow up? Born and raised in Chicago. Windy uh, City? Yep, Windy City, south side of Chicago. Uh, inner City. Because I think you know a lot of people these days say uh, Chicago in there from hell seven hundred miles south and go, oh, I'm in Chicago. I'm like, yeah, there's a big difference from being in the city. Can you describe that? I've uh, never I've never been to Chicago. I've flown in through O'Hare, but I've never actually Uh so I grew up uh born in seventy five. So Chicago for me it was the eighties and nineties. Um uh and I'd say South Side is or as they say South Side's the realist. Um predominantly yeah the South Side, West Side or minorities are uh mostly uh south side was just rough i mean grew up in the projects um on the low end of chicago and uh it's a way of life you just you can't it's not avoidable right you either work with it learn how to deal with it or you get eaten if you can compare any part of dallas to to that side what or is, or is there anything that does compare to it? Yeah, I, Dixon Circle. Okay. Dixon Circle is very close. Wow. Yeah. Like, but imagine Dixon Circle all over the city. We talked about this Dixon Circle actually in the Candelaria's uh, episode. Mm-hmm. What about it? The, the community? So it's the, it's the community. It's the mindset. It's the, um, it, it's the 100% this is all we know. Um this is the only way of life. Um, it was probably, I was probably 16 before I actually got outside of an area of Chicago that I didn't know was rough. Right. And that was, uh, my godfather took me to a mall just outside of the, uh, West side, uh, forget what, what city it was, but just outside of on the West side of Chicago, little suburban area. And I was like, this is Chicago. He was like, uh, yeah, we're still in the city. I've never seen it. 16 years, I'd never seen it because all I knew was south side of Chicago, west side, you know, because family was over there. But I didn't know anything else. And that's kind of the people like you. If you don't get out of that, you don't move around. You just don't know because your family's there, your friends are there. And this is all y'all do. So very much like Dixon Circle. So you said it's a way of life. It's all you know. You you learn it or to survive or you don't. So mm-hmm. 
up to 16 years old, what's young Dre like? What, what are you doing? Um, so, oddly enough, uh, young Dre was kind of like everybody else. Going outside playing, uh, having a good time. You go to school because you have to. Um, but everything else as part of uh, your growing up is your environment. It's the hood. It's your friends. It's family. It's everything outside, right? Uh, you get home from school, do a little bit of homework. Mom kicks you out the house. You don't come back in the house until it's almost dark, right? Street lights come on. She comes on the porch. She yells. You better have your ass back on the porch, you know, or back at the house. Um, everybody knew mom's voice or their mom's voice when she yelled out, hey, come back to the house, especially if you weren't already there. Um, so that part wasn't different. The, uh, that part wasn't different for me than most folks, but it's the violence that's part of it that you thought was normal and it's not. You know, gangs, uh, shootings, cuttings, all of that stuff is not a normal thing, but so it did you see it. a lot of violence? What? Yeah. No, you know, you know how, we, we talked about before how like in, like in parts of Dallas that, you know, they'll have a dead body laying out in a murder scene. And then there's like, it's like a theater. People bringing their kids up to go watch, basically see what's going on. So I had a cousin to get stabbed um, and passed away. He died um, on the block, on our block. Uh, I think I was 11. 11 uh he was outside arguing with a guy um somebody uh him and the guy got into it a couple other guys came up so he turned to address them turned back around the guy stabs him a few times leaves everybody comes out i mean there was no rendering aid there was no help there was no anything he just even back then before cell phones people were doing that where they're just spectators yeah, yeah everybody yeah. just comes out to see what's going on mm. i mean the whole neighborhood came out whole, whole block came out um and, you know, eventually you, you hear that, you know, your cousin got stabbed and everybody's running from everywhere and they're just looking. I mean, there is nothing happening. Um, but that, again, that was in the 80s. And that was the norm. Every day somebody was getting hurt. It was not an unusual thing. So talking about when you were growing up there, how did you how were you able to stay out and of, of trouble and kind of stay in that straight and narrow path? Oh, no, no, no. He did city. Yeah, he, yeah, did. Yeah, no. he was in trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you did, you're doing pretty good. I mean, you're here now. And so um, as as uh, I would say as luck, but uh, as God would have it or as fate would have it, my, uh, my mom didn't play when it came to get your work done, get your school stuff done. Uh, my mom had a very specific philosophy, which she, she believed you should um, be able to handle being in the streets, be able to handle being in the classroom, be able to conduct yourself in a, in a professional, what she would consider a professional environment. Um, my mom actually dropped out of school at 16. So her ambition, of course, was to make sure that her kids got past where she was. So she didn't really tolerate a lot of BS as far as getting your stuff done. Uh, she didn't play that. And it wasn't until later, I was in high school when she actually started working and you know, actually making a way for herself. My mom was on public assistance and all that housing assistance stuff. I mean, it was just the typical story. So um, she didn't play with the, about that part. She didn't, there was no joking about getting your work done. Uh, what are your grades going to look like? So, I mean, you came in, you did your homework, then you got to go outside. You know, all your chores and stuff got done in the morning, but she didn't play about that. So you still got in trouble. You still, you know, got, you know, spanking, or disciplined and all of that. 
Hell, I remember once getting hit by a car and I didn't tell her. Um, and it was uh, one of the na- ladies in the neighborhood who hit me. Uh, I was coming out of an alley. There's a bunch of us coming out of an alley on our bikes, hauling ass through the alley. Boom, come out onto the street. The lady's coming down. Boom, hits, hits me on the bike. I end up on the hood of her car. I'm looking at her like, oh, my God, what? You know, she looks at, she jumps out of the car. She goes, are you okay? Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. Because, I mean, you're a kid, you're all right. Um, get, off, get off the car, get my bike, uh, front tires turned, walk it all the way to the house, don't say anything to my mom about it. About four or five days later, the lady sees my mom. She goes, hey, how's Andre? She's like, what are you talking about? He's fine. She goes, well, I mean, I hit him with my car. Man, I got the beating of my life. <laughs> I, 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 there's a few beatings that I remember. That one was definitely one of them. And she said, you could have had internal bleeding. You could have died. Da, da, da. Yeah, mom didn't play. You keep mentioning your mother. Was she like the biggest figure in your life that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, my mom uh, My mom was just exceptional, awesome woman. Uh, again, she grew up in Chicago, too. So, I mean, my mom knew game banging. She was in a game. She knew all of that lifestyle because that's where we lived. Um, but she just wanted more for us. What were some of the more prominent gangs in, in Chicago when you were there? Oh, probably the same ones that are still there. Yeah. Vice Lords, Gangs of Disciples, um, and then some variations of that. But those predominantly year two. Um, mm. And then there's going to be all these little branch offs uh, from that. You had a few Latin gangs back then, but they weren't that big yet. Had, did the Asian, Asian gangs at all no. up in that area? No, okay. no, definitely not on the south side or the west side. Did you gravitate to, uh, to sports at some point? So, um, again, being outside all the time, you, you played everything. Basketball, baseball, football, it didn't matter. Mostly football, though. Loved football. Um, got pretty good at it. It was pretty fast, even though I was short. So I was, like, super short when I was younger. Um, I graduated eighth grade at, like, four foot eight, ninety seven 97 pounds. So, That's my height now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I went to high school, so that summer, graduated eighth grade, went to high school, um, and I grew three inches. So I was like, yes, I am it. I'm it. So four foot 11. You're ready for basketball. 100 pounds, yes. <laughs> I, I thought I was ready. I get in high school, and I'm the shortest guy in the school. So, yeah. But um, athletically, I could keep up. So it, it was blessing and a curse. Bears fan. Oh, all the yeah. way. Sweetness. Bears and Bulls. I never watched hockey, though. No, okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. They, got, they got somewhat of a good team out here. Mm-hmm. I'm kidding. Yeah. yeah so no, no. I, I was. I, I liked the uh, the Bears and when uh, the Ryan defense, the 46 defense, when uh, mm-hmm. and, and they're amazing. And I used to like watching uh, Peyton. Um, I didn't care for my man much. Mm-hmm. But, man, he didn't, you know. Everyone wanted to be – Somebody on the Bears in 85. Uh, Who'd you want to be? Oh, Walter Payton. Okay. By far. Uh, that, was, that was the only way to run the ball, you know. He didn't mind taking a hit. Oh, he would. Uh, the philosophy was he's going to hit you. Yeah. You're not just going to take that hit. So You don't see that this, these days. They don't. No. Guys are a little softer. Well, mm-hmm. I can't say they're soft. They're just different. How about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, the, the linebacker, I mean, everybody's bigger. you got safeties that are now that are sizes of some – you know, stand up ends. You got linemen running four fives. Yeah. How does that? I mean, that's yeah, that's crazy. The evolution. Mm-hmm. So you say you're a Bulls fan. I got to say that 
the 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 Jordan Bowl. I mean, like everybody growing up then. I mean, I I even have a Jordan rookie still uh, from that '86 yes. Flair set. I h- held on to that, but uh, you know, I was being here in Dallas, Texas, growing up here. I was obsessed with the Bulls and Jordan. Everybody in Chicago were. You know, should have won eight straight if he wouldn't have left for those. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So you kept you got into sports and and that kept evolving. What did it evolve to like when you got into high school later years? So high school for me, um, graduated from eighth grade high school, went to high school, and I went to Lindblom uh, Tech High School. Lindblom was a college prep school. So um, you actually had to, te- even though it was a public school, you had to test to get in. Um, and so uh, I had to travel from the south side of Chicago to the southwest side of Chicago on public transportation. Um, so I was leaving, ho- leaving my house at 6 o'clock in the morning so I could be at school by 7.50 just to make sure you could take all the buses, trains, whatever, so you could be there on time. Because there is no bus that comes and picks you up for school. Uh, so I got there, and um, I guess sports wasn't necessarily my mom's uh, big concern. Again, her thing was the grades, you know, make sure your grades are right. So I was, uh, I was playing pretty much, what, track, baseball. No, I didn't play baseball. Track, uh, football. Um, wanted to go out for basketball, but I was way too short for it. Um, but athletic, I mean, excuse me, academically, man, I was in everything, anything to keep me busy. Um, and she encouraged, uh, doing everything. So I was like on the uh, academic decathlon team, French team, debate team, uh, math club, um, architecture and drafting club. This makes sense now. What's that? I, I think guys get surprised sometimes on different hobbies or interests you have. Like, really? And I'm like, it, Dre walks to the beat of his own drum. Yes. He does his own thing. He's got things you wouldn't even know about. That's just the way he is. <laughs> They're going to know now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, so for, for me, uh, coming out of high school, going into high school, the sports just wasn't the real – it wasn't the real focus. Um, I did it as kind of a byproduct. It was just something else to do um, because, again, my mom didn't play. You were coming out of high school – uh, her goal was to get us all out of high school because she had never done that. All right, so she made sure she stayed on us to make that happen. Did you have any uh, run-ins or any kind of relationship growing up, uh, teen, late teen, with uh, Chicago PD? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So you can say whatever you want. If you incriminate yourself, I'll just yeah, yeah we'll yeah, take right, it out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bad place, yeah, no, statute right. limitations. So anyway. no, I, I would say. Nothing different than what anybody in Chicago would have got caught up for, right? Um, funny story about Chicago, though. Chicago PD. Um, I, it wasn't until I became an officer here that I realized that how we were treated by Chicago PD was a violation of our civil rights. I mean, if you got caught and talked to, you got spanked. You got some attention or some loving, as you know. Um, and so the whole when you see the police run, oh, that was just a regular thing. Um, because you didn't want to get caught. You got caught, you got hurt. Um, and then you got let go most of the time, right? So it was kind of the trade-off in the neighborhood unless it was serious. But, again, we were kids. So um, there was still back in the day when you could actually have a fight and see the person the next day and fight. Um, now, if that was a gang fight, though, it was a little different. So folks might end up dying. But, no, nah, no real – no real – I was just – super bad and got caught with this that and the other um my cousins pretty much kept me out of that 
uh, they wouldn't allow me to hang out with them. And mama, me. mom couldn't have mom didn't have any say so. And once you get outside, okay, man, mom it's free for all. Yeah, mom, yeah, she can't stop that. But my cousins were all older, uh, bigger. Uh, they were all in the drug game and all of that kind of stuff. So myself and another cousin, uh, they just wouldn't let us hang around. I think I was uh, I was probably five year five years younger uh, than the other group of cousins. And so uh, we would try to come and hang out with them and they just pretty much kick our ass and tell us to go somewhere else. And we used to get really upset about it, right? You know, we were trying to be there, be part of the scene, be part of the family. And they were like, nah. So out of all of that, there's only one cousin. And I was probably like 10, 11. There's only one cousin still alive. Well, me and and my other cousin. But that was it, just one more of that older group, just one. Good on them, shielding you from that. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, of course, at that time, you think, you know, why y'all hating on us? You, you, you treating us bad? But they were trying to keep. They were trying to protect us. Just curious, will this older cousin hear this episode? Uh, I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, he doesn't do, you know, police stuff. None of the family really did police stuff. Yeah, but will you stuff. share share it with him? Oh yeah. I mean, if he wants cool. to hear it, you All know, right. yeah. But um, yeah. I mean, they were awesome in that. I just, I, mean, I wouldn't have known it then, right? Because th- th- we were ostracized so to speak, you know, it's like, why can't we, you know, we're trying to be with the fam. We're trying to do everything else that everyone else is doing and they wouldn't let it. Wouldn't let you into the treehouse. Yeah. It, it yeah. was, it was hard. It, you know, at that time it was really hard because, uh, this is what everyone does, but they wouldn't let us do it. And so we were a little upset about it, but, um, <laughs> they also wouldn't let anyone in the neighborhood let us do it. So that was the other thing, because sometimes your family might not do it. You can go over here and holler at these folks, and they'll take care of you. You know, nah, everybody knew. Good. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you may not be sitting here with us right there, you know. Very much so. So where did you go to college at? Jackson State, the Jackson State University. All right. So did you go there on a, uh, on a scholarship? Or? <laughs> Let's talk about that. <clears throat> oh, my God. So I finished up high school, and – um, I thought just kind of coming out of high school, I was just going to be good. And again, my mom just wanted us to get out of high school. So I didn't even plan to go to college. High school was done. Once I was done with high school, I was going to start working, help out with mom, help mom out. So, um, I didn't put in one college application when I, gra- before I graduated, not one best friend and I, uh, said we were going to stay, start working. He actually got a football scholarship though, uh, and didn't go. But we were going to stay in Chicago. We were going to be there, work, and take care of the family, do what we could, hustle up, and all of that good stuff. Um, so we went to Harold Washington Community College for uh, first semester. Uh, I guess we got out for the summer, did our little thing, and uh, signed up for some classes. We took the classes that uh, first semester, and we were like, this is some bullshit. Because we came from a college prep school. We was like, this is trash. We, we don't need this. So... His girlfriend was like, well, y'all need to put in some college applications. And she called us a few choice words um, because we didn't. Um, so we applied to Jackson State, the only school we applied for. Uh, we got accepted, no problems, because, I mean, hell, our scores were good. Our grades were good. But we didn't have any financial aid. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, of course, because we didn't plan to do anything, we were just like, ah, whatever. So we got accepted for that January, but no money. So we said, hey, we're just going to stick around. Uh, so we stayed in Chicago, and actually, I think that's where a lot of things changed for both of us. 
um, stayed in Chicago from January to June. Actually, we stayed there to August, but from January to June, uh, we went to work, got a little job. I got a job in Evanston. He got a job at uh, the library. And um, after work, so we both worked during the day. After work, we would go to the YMCA from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., five days a week. Wow. Working out. There you go. Like ridiculous. I think between that six months, I grew probably another two inches, and I went from 160 pounds to 190 in six months. That's a lot of working out. Oh, it was. Yeah. So you got into sports at Jackson State? Um, So, again, more focus on the school more so than the the sports, but I did play football at Jackson State. Um, But I I went down there because – my I, my grandmother uh, and my godfather told me to get the hell out of Chicago. It was like, um, you can't stay here. You're a teenager. Um, and, you know, I mean, 18, 19. But in Chicago, everybody was dying. Teenage males were just straight dying. And so um, it was just the violence. And so they were like, you got to get out of here. Uh, you can't stay. Um, so once we applied to Jackson State and we left, it was uh, it was pretty good there. But I figured if I'm back in school, I might as well make it worth my while. And so, again, the focus wasn't – and, again, this we just applied to go down there. So there wasn't a sports scholarship or any of that kind of stuff. It was – and I didn't even walk on until my sophomore year because I still – I didn't know anything about college. So, What position did you play? Uh, tailback. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've known you since you got on DPD, and you're always just a freak physical specimen. I mean, you really are. What was your 40 time? Uh, 4-3. Four, 4-3. Four, yeah, 4-3. Yeah, that, that's they, moving. Uh, it, it was, yeah. That's fast, Dre. That, that there is, were guys that were faster than me. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Mm. that's pretty damn fast. It didn't seem like it back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of guys faster than me. Man, if I ran a 4-3, you couldn't even speak to me. No. no. <laughs> yeah. You'd be talking about somebody <laughs> ran fast. Get out of my face. <laughs> Bruh. There were guys that ran 4-2s. All day long, like effortlessly. So four three, four four, you know, on average, but a four three every now and again, that was just okay. Yeah. No, wow. Were, it, yeah, there were some gifted guys down there. When did you decide you wanted to get in law enforcement? I never wanted to get in law enforcement okay. ever. Well, how that? How the hell that happen? I needed a job coming out of college. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I never, ever, 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 ever wanted to be police. So. As that story goes, I was uh, I graduated from Jackson State, um, and uh, what was it, December of '98. Uh, I was working, and um, uh, I was doing personal training, working as a security guard, and uh, some of the little odd thing I don't even remember what it was. But my day started at like five in the morning. Sounds a lot like a gigolo. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> we, we could make that the title. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the day started at 5 in the morning, didn't finish till 9. And I was like, there's got to be an easier way to, to make some money than this. Um, the, year, uh, the year before, in 97, uh, Jack, uh, Dallas had come down and said, hey, we're hiring. And I was like, I wonder if those gun, some of the guns are still hiring or not. So I was like, they were talking about $39,000 a year. I'm like, I'm not making that right now. 39000 That's a lot of money. It was big, big money for me back then. Uh, so I sent, uh, sent the application in. Actually, I called 
And uh, they said, yes, we're, of course we're still hiring. We'll send you an application. So this was, again, before emails and stuff like that. So they actually sent it in the mail, sent the application. Big, th- thick packet. Yes, yeah. yes, big, thick packet. Um, I filled it out, uh, I think, like January 28th. Uh, sent it down. I figured, well, I, I don't know how long it'll be before I hear from them. Um, February, they said, hey, uh, can you come down, uh, mid-February, can you come down for a three-day testing? I was like, absolutely. I'll come on then for that. Uh, so came down, did that little weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday testing thing that they used to do. Um, and then I ended up getting hired in the March 19th class. So got hired in like less than two months. So saying that you didn't ever, ever want to be a cop, mm-hmm. now it's like becoming real for you? It still didn't stick yet. It, it wasn't even. Did you think you're going to do it temporarily? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So at this point, I was like, I'll I'll step in there. I'll do a little bit. And then maybe I'll go like federal or something like that. You know, I'll go to a federal service and still wasn't thinking policing by any means. Um, Again, because it just never seemed appealing. There there was no real oomph to it. Um, And that whole, well, why do you want it? I want to protect and serve. No, I I needed a job. And, And that was the only out. Have you ever been to Dallas before? No. Really? I had never been here. You've been in Texas? Uh, no. Uh, yes, yes. Frat Brothers came here one time to Fort Worth. Uh, he, he uh, I think we did a little road trip because his folks were from here. So we came in, came to some part of Fort Worth. I don't even remember what it was, but we stayed the weekend and then we left. But that was the only time I'd ever been here. What did you know about Dallas? But Nothing. Other than they had the... The amazing Dallas Cowboys. No. <laughs> Trash. <laughs> Trash. <laughs> so I had to slip. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Uh, no. I got you smiling. Though. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so, no, I'm a uh, Bears and 49ers fan. Wow. So, don't I, yeah. I root for any team that plays the Cowboys, any okay. team, all teams that play the Cowboys. So, it sounds like Chief Curse takes up the opposite. He said the Niners, he roots – Anybody who's playing the Niners is his favorite team. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when it comes to the Cowboys, yes. Right. Um, so, no, I didn't know anything about Texas. Just, uh, so, more or less, when I, uh, when I came down, to, went to Jackson State, it was a take a direction. You know, you need to do something different. Um, I got ready to graduate, and I was like, okay, cool, I need to do something different. And had Dallas not come down and said that they were hiring, I wouldn't have made that call. So, it was just happenstance, guidance. We've interviewed so many people that, basically have put in other applications other agencies and and it seems like dallas always somehow just came out of nowhere to mm-hmm. to fall in their lap yeah recruiting if you're listening there's a common theme of dallas called first and that's the only reason i'm here so there is yeah exactly i mean you we, listen mm-hmm. to the other episodes and like dallas answered first or the next thing you know they two weeks later they contacted me and gave me a job so even like Dottie and steve claggett way back i mean it literally mm-hmm. there's a theme with like Hey, we're glad we're happy to have you here. Yeah, I mean, it uh, it worked out. Yeah, it worked out. Had they not reached out, I no idea. So when you get you get you get into the academy, where's your impressions of Dallas PD in this academy? Oh my god! So in classic Dre fashion, I get into the academy. Uh, I came, I moved here. So at the time, I had um, I was engaged, had a, a stepson, and. I was like, okay, we're going to see how we can make this work, right? I'm going to try to do this family thing and be this guy. But in classic Dre fashion, I, come, I moved down here on Saturday, and the academy starts that Monday, right? So I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to be at, what I'm going to do. This, I've never even drove to the academy to see where the hell I'm going to be at 
and it starts Monday. We didn't, we didn't have phones in Google back no, then either. No, I no, mean, Maps yeah, that was a Maps go, right? <laughs> yeah. It was something to figure it out. So classic Dre fashion, I show up Monday, Academy, uh, you had to be there at 8 o'clock. I got there like 8.10. Oh, first day. First day, mm. classic Dre fashion. Mm. Tuesday, I get there like 8.05. Improving, yeah, improving. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Wednesday, I get there like 8.05. A sergeant pulls me into the office and says, hey, um, I noticed you've been late. I said, uh, yes, sir, I'm just getting to Dallas. I hadn't even been here a week. I'm just trying to figure my way. Well, either you figure it out tomorrow or you're fired. I said, what? <laughs> I said, are you serious? I, I, I just have never, yeah, um, figure it out tomorrow or you're fired. How far like, were you living from the academy? Lancaster. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not, not that far. No. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. 15 minutes. <laughs> there, was no tra- there was no traffic. Wow. No. Especially that time. No reason no. at all to be late three no. days in a row. No. None at all. Hey. Run with that. Yes. Yeah. No. Again, like I said, classic Dre fashion, right? I'm, Dre's going to do it his way. I'm, oh, I'll get there. That's, that's not a problem. So, yeah, things had to change real quick. Yeah. We're going through and, and seeing a new different type of structure. Have you been exposing to that, anything like that before? No. Okay. So, I pretty much. Even in sports. You, no. Not, yeah. I could pretty much do things my way, how I wanted to do it. Um, and I could get by with it, make it happen um, until, like I said, until then. He ran a four three. Like he right. could, yeah, could show yeah, up yeah, to practice yeah, a little yeah, bit. Right. Like nobody's yeah, going to say anything. Yeah, nobody usually does. I what academy know. class were you in? Uh, Two sixty one. Okay. Who was the? Uh, who is anybody else still in the department? Oh yeah, quite a few folks okay. actually. Uh, we still have uh, who is it? Uh, Lieutenant Sanderlin. Okay. Uh, Melinda. Uh, Gutierrez. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Who else is still here? Aha, Amy. Amy Brewer. Oh, shout out Amy. Yeah. Yeah, Brew Dog. Wow. That's my dog. Um, Chris Williams is still here. Uh, he's a Southeast. Who else is still here? We still have a few. I think we have about eight or nine people still here. Yeah, I'm about – I think we have six – five or six. I mean, we're yeah, we're dwindling. Yeah, it's pretty thin. I mean, now, hell, it's been 24 years. Yeah. So, the academy, did you find it easy or hard? Did you just – once you finally showed up on time, yeah. I mean well, – Yeah, once the th- uh, the sergeant kind of threatened my whole job and livelihood, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, actual academy was pretty simple, right? Because I just come out of college, so I was like, "I'm in study mode." Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here at a desk, I'd read, test, end of the week, good to go. And then role play it, suspect, cop, bad guy, you know. Yeah. And, so yeah. DT was fun. I mean, I came out of college. It was, was cute to you. You thought, yeah, that's uh, cute. Yes, it's it, cute. Pretty much it. Yeah, it was yeah. cute. It was cute. That's cute so over there. I remember uh, me. So this, this was back when they used to do body fat test and all of that kind of stuff, sit and reach and all of that. Me and uh, Josh Sanderlin. Uh, we're both at six percent body fat when uh, we used to do the test. So I think I was one hundred ninety-three pounds with six percent body fat. Josh was like one hundred and forty-five pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with six percent body fat. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So let me. I'm, I'm going out of the limb here. Did you get top overall in fitness? I, I did. Mm. I did. But there was a guy in my class named David. David Isigide. Who came out of the military? Oh yeah, I know Dave. I think yeah. Dave's still here too. Yeah. Yes, he is. is he still at Southeast yeah. or something? Uh, no, he, no. Got, he got a detective yeah. spot somewhere. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, he's a detective. Um, Dave would smoke me on the mile and a half. Yeah, that was his thing to run. Yeah, bruh, I mean, smoke me. I was like, how is he doing this? Because you look at David, he is unassuming. You go, nah, this he's guy. not running four three. No, no, no. And he doesn't look like it, but I didn't know he was Special Forces or something like that either. Um, 
I, I think it was the very last PT test. I was trying to keep up with him, and uh, something happened to his knee. And he was like, oh, go ahead and pass me. I was like, are you kidding me? So um, I got the mile and a half done in under nine minutes. But had he not just said, go ahead and pass me, I, I, I wouldn't have been close. Man, poor Dave. That's th- signs of things to come. But he's he's had some. Yes, a lot of knee surgeries yeah. and a lot of other stuff. We're running out there on that track. Doesn't do too well for the knees. No, I mean, but I, hell, at the time I was young, it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah nothing mattered then. So when you graduate, what uh, what division did you go to? Northeast. Oh man, I went to Northeast, and I think that is the best station on the department. Huh. We'll cut that out, Dan. Yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> no, okay. no, I'm absolutely correct. <laughs> we got four Southeast guys and one Northeast. I wonder who's going to win this argument. So and the, we got editing rights too. So right. don't forget that. Yeah, I know, right? Um, we'll dub it. We'll dub a voice in of him saying Southeast. Yeah, the best. yeah. Southeast. Yeah, Southeast. God's country. Uh-huh. Uh, so so the, now we got the clip now, Danny. We we can all, do alter that. It. Yeah. But the, so the only reason I I think Northeast is probably one of the better stations is because you got everything there. Variety. Yeah, yep. you got variety. Um, you still had that North Grove area, which was the 20s for us. Uh, John which, West. John West, <clears throat> Buckner, PV area. Um, and that's where I was actually assigned to um, uh, Element 226. I won't forget it. Uh, and so... But you, we had that area, so there was a lot of good police work to get done down there. You had the 30s, which everybody loved you. You had the 10s, where everybody thought you were, you know, happy to see you. Folks would pay for your meal here and there. You had the 40s, where you had a lot of work, and you had the 50s that had a little bit of mix, you know. Um, so you had, oh, and you had White Rock Lake. Yeah. Who could ever? Right, yeah. It's- it's yes. nice. It's yeah. still nice. <laughs> yes, it is. But you had five points that you go yeah. to the other side. Yes. So, you know, you got this variety you could always eat, too. Yeah, it's a big one you can eat. Yes, you can eat at uh, at uh, Northeast. You got to search Southeast, there was nowhere to eat. Yes. It, you wouldn't. No. You wouldn't want to know about what they're stirring the beans with, you know. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. What kind of work did you gravitate to when you got out there? Oh, I was a dope chaser. Uh, it's yep. a common theme with our guests. Yep, I was a dope chaser down in um, – the John West Buckner area. So growing up in Southside Chicago, did you feel like you had a good mind for what oh. was going on in Dallas? With or was it totally different in Dallas? No, absolutely. People are people. Yeah, yeah. This the same thing all over. So I knew exactly what I was looking at. There was there there was no doubt about you know what the guys were doing and what I understood it to be. So you recognize the game just from ex- growing up. At it. Yes, it was one hundred percent the exact same thing. And I I remember couple of guys you get into it with had some confrontations this and the other and I told them I told the guys specifically that were hanging out in front of the 7-Eleven because it used to be a 7-Eleven right there Buckner and PV where it kind of mm-hmm. does a little Y at and uh some asked some Laura Johnson asked some guys to leave she retired from the department but uh she asked some guys to leave they didn't leave from in front of the 7-Eleven because they were slinging so I'm talking to her and we kind of look over they're still standing there so we go over, talk to him again, go back to what we were doing. I look over and they're still standing there. Well, I'm from Chicago. So my understanding of policing is the police had to tell you, first of all, when you saw them, you're supposed to leave, right? But secondly, they talked to you and you still stayed there. So I took it as a very, very hard disrespect. So it went over, we had some very choice words and they went across the street. Um, but that was my beginning of, Oh, y'all just don't respect the police down here. So, was it different in Chicago though? I mean, as far as the respect. Yeah. I mean, I know they got 
yeah. They get they ran. It was going to be. It wasn't going to end, end yeah. up well for them. But the, as far as the police versus bad guy, there was there was there more of a uh, I don't know more of a relationship there as so, than it is there in Dallas. So the the saying in Chicago used to be, "Who's the biggest gang in the city?" And that was the police. Okay. The police are the biggest They're, gang. They do have a big-ass gang there. Yeah, right. You know, So you have the neighborhood, but if the police come around, that's that's a done deal. That's not any joke, and you're going to respect that. Um, and so my understanding of how the respect should be shown was kind of different when I got here because it was kind of soft. And I was like, no, that's not how that works. And what year was that? When did you- I joined the department in 99. Okay, 99. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you... You, we're gonna. I'm kind of ramping up to whenever you left patrol. I left patrol in uh, 2003. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, tell the listener where that was. What's that? Uh, where did you? Where oh, did you I go? left. Uh, I left patrol and went to SWAT. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. What drew you to that unit? So that's a funny story. Um, I was in. Uh, I was in deployment, plain clothes deployment. Uh, deployment. So I went from patrol. And I applied to deployment um, probably about a year after being on the streets. I applied. and uh, I why, why don't you tell the listeners what deployment is? Ah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So deployment is, um, at the time, is a proactive unit, essentially. Um, you have half of the unit was plain clothes. The other half of the unit um, were uniformed. And essentially, you'd go out and you'd observe people selling drugs, selling whatever, doing whatever you're lieutenant or chief at the time would uh, ask you to go do to find and help bring down some crime numbers in a specific area. Um, and oddly at that time, my lieutenant was uh, DOB. And so uh, David Brown. Super in- former superintendent yeah. of Chicago PD, Correct. David Brown. Yeah. yeah, but he was he was my lieutenant at Northeast at the time. He was a lieutenant over uh, at least employment and all the administrative stuff. And so um, deployment also would go out and do kind of like what our fugitive guys would do currently. You know, hey, yeah. we, we want this guy. Long before Metro and all that. Yeah. Fugitive, yeah. Hey, go find this guy. So we had a, man, amazing group of guys um, that had some real skills. Dave DeRica um, and uh, Alfonso Ellis and a bunch of guys like that that were just awesome at doing the job. So. I remember applying and I didn't get picked the first time around and I thought it was absolutely insane. I was like, how do I not get picked for this? Right. I'm from Chicago. I got this skill set. I know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And I think it was the second time I got picked, um, to come to the unit and play and be planes clothes. So, um, while in deployment, um, we did a warrant class, uh, and SWAT put it on. So, um, we do the school. It was a week-long school just to learn how to, to go in a, an apartment if you had to. Because even back then, uh, your deployment the units did not run warrants. I mean, we didn't kick in doors at all. I mean, we would get close to it, but we wouldn't kick any in. Um, but if we had to go in, we had at least the basics of what SWAT was going to do. And so um, I guess I did okay in the school, um, and I didn't know there were some conversations had. Because back in the day, it was more about who you knew than the fact that, you know, I'm just going to apply and it's just straight even across the board. Um, so um, a opening comes up for SWAT and I was like, cool, I think I should, you know, I'll apply, talk to the guys. They were like, man, yeah, we've already talked to some people. They said you probably would do pretty good over there. Um, you, you know, I'll make a phone call. And I was like, I don't know what that means. 
right now. I was like, okay, cool. So, um, apply for the opening when it happens. And, uh, before, uh, probably about a couple of two months before, um, we do our testing and stuff. David Brown takes me over to central. He's like, Hey, come ride with me. And I was like, yes, sir. Right over to central. I meet, uh, chief mom and Neil, Bobby Owens and Patricia Paul Hill. And David Brown saying, Hey, this guy's a pretty good guy. Um, take a look at him. I think he'll be in the next Warren school. If you guys take a look at him. And I was like, I don't know what all this means. I'm just shaking my head. Right. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, so all that happens, Warren school comes up and all my guys are like, Hey, you better show out or during the school. And of course that's not what to say. You know, you better show out. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't know what that means, but I'll do the best I can. Um, and so back then you didn't have, uh, you didn't have a selection school like we do now. Um, you had the PT test, you had an interview. Um, and that interview was with the sergeant and the squad. The whole squad had to be there for that interview. <laughs> wow. So the entire squad. Yes. Yeah. You're, they're picking a new family member. Yeah. No. That's... Yeah. And that's how it specifically was back then. Um, how old were you then? 26. Wow. Yeah. 26. Pretty young. Pretty oh, young for SWAT. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Super young. Especially for that group. Yes. Very young. Very naive. Very, you know, just you talk about wet behind the ears. No idea what I was getting into. How'd that interview go with the when the whole squad come in? To, who who are some of the heavy hitters in that squad? Everybody in the squad okay. was a heavy hitter. Come on, let, let's so, hear some of them. So my squad then was uh, Steve Claggett. Oh, so Bob, we've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, Steve Claggett, Bob Cockrell, heard of him. Rich Emberlin. Yep. Randy Lancaster. Okay. Johnny Baker. Um, okay. Mike Keating. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> kind of murderers row there, <laughs> bruh. You talk about did they just line up and just like on the Murder three stooges just slapping that man? Bro, it was awful. And at the time, it was uh, Stan Bass was uh, oh, the Stanley? sergeant. Oh, yes, Dan like, was the sergeant. I like Stan. Um, and so you talk about rough. I mean, everybody sitting there just looking at you with this hard stare, glare, and asking questions. I mean, because initially the sergeant is asking questions. Um, and you're just looking like, okay, and you're trying to answer. You think you're giving whatever answer you can. And then they would fire back with some other Yes. Stuff. Oh, my God. It, it was – you walked out of there like you just failed. Like, no, they're definitely – I died. It I, was like our interview board except times a thousand. Yes. Yeah. It, it was – you. I walked out of there like, nope, I'm, they're not getting – they're not going to pick me. There's no way in hell they're going to pick me. I was like, I don't have an answer to any question. Like, I – uh, how familiar are you with weapons? Uh, uh, they have I, a trigger. I, I, uh, uh, the academy taught me how to shoot properly, and they were like, <laughs> <laughs> right. this, this eye rolling back, and they're like, this, <laughs> this is not gonna work. This is not gonna, you know. So, uh, do you have any experience with rifles? Uh, I've never shot a rifle. No, I, no, sir. I don't. Uh, do you know anything about any sort of tactics? No, sir. I, I don't know anything about any sort of tactics. How many spots were open that you were applying for? Uh, when I applied at the time, there were five openings. Okay. Um, and Did all five get filled when you – Yeah. Okay. It, it was it was pretty odd at that time because at that time, they said they'd never have five people come over at once. Like, it was ridiculous. Um, but I came over with uh, Misty, Misty Van Curen, mm-hmm. uh, Jason Perez, Kelly White, and Todd Stratman. And me and Todd Stratman ended up being uh, squad mates. So I ended up being the new guy with another new guy. 
Um, so I thought that was going to save me, but it didn't. He was from Northeast also, right? Yeah. Yeah. Todd, great great yeah. dude to, to be paired up with. Uh, no, it was not. No. <laughs> Why is that? All the attention went on you and not Oh, my him. God. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. So it was not great because Todd was super awesome, like, in everything. When Todd has a specific way and method, he is organized, he, methodical. Todd is. He's not showing up at 805. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Todd got there at 715 okay. for the 8 o'clock deal. Uh-huh. And, and Dre now and SWAT gets there at like 753. And everybody's like. He's early. Yeah. What? No. No, he's still late. That's not early. Yeah, no, no. That's not early. And they're still looking like, what the new guy? FNG. Uh. Yeah, so. Um, that was a heck of a process. What was the culture like in SWAT during that? I, you mentioned off some some big names, and, and the listeners heard quite mm-hmm. a few. I know, and I Randy Li, uh, Lancaster, I ran into him not long ago, and he listens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Claggett has been on for several episodes now. That had, mm-hmm. some I hadn't even aired yet, and we go back and forth. Uh, he listens as well, and he's going to be. He doesn't know about this. I've been keeping this episode under the under wraps, <laughs> so. Uh, so now you you know he's I'm sure he's not going to listen to this. Mm-hmm. How was Steve Claggett working with? <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, don't worry, he doesn't. Steve yeah, I know. Won't listen he, to he this. Won't listen to it at all. No, no. Uh, so S- Steve, Bob, and Rich, Mikey, or Rich. I, I can't put Rich in there. I'd say uh, Keating. Steve, Bob, and Keating were uh, absolutely. what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, impossible, Im- absolutely impossible to please. Like they were, I, you, you did it wrong. Did you show up on time? Yes. You're wrong. Are you humming? Oh, you, we don't hum. And it's like, bro, are you kidding me right now? Are you so serious? Yeah. Yes. We're serious. It was, those guys were good and knowing their job and they were hell trying to teach it to you. Um, and I don't know if it was because I didn't have any experience at anything um, or the fact that there was just slight assholes mm-hmm. um, that made it so difficult. Um, I, I appreciate now how they were relentless in making sure that the standard was held, though. I can't I can't knock that because I understand what the purpose was. But going through that was was uh, shattering well this is also the first time in your life that you haven't been fantastic at something just right off the bat correct i had zero skills i had zero knowledge and i think it was um mike keating that said uh come to work shut up listen learn go home practice and i said yes sir he said no come to work on time shut up listen learn home and practice and i was like yes sir and he kind of looked at me like you're not listening (laughs) (laughs) you're you're already ready for your yes sir response yes and he he wasn't trying to hear it yeah no it was uh it was a tough crowd back then i mean there was a mm -mm, those guys were relentless how long did it take to fit in to finally get accepted and and you felt (laughs) confidence around that group (laughs) uh don't worry steve don't listen yeah i know right so I don't know if uh, I don't know if there was ever like a really fit in. Um, I was still Dre, right? So I'm still kind of the I'm a, I'm going to do things my way. I think um, 
I was still, I still had piercings. I remember when I applied, I had my tongue pierced at the time. And uh, Steve Claggett was like, what the fuck is that in your mouth? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you know what I'm talking about. What's that in your mouth? I was like, it's a tongue piercing. He goes, we're SWAT. We don't do that. And I was like, well, well I do. So I'm already going to, you know, I'm, I'm messing up the motif. I'm, I'm going against the grain already. And I, mean, I was like, okay. I said, I can take it out. No, Rich Emblem was like, you probably want to take that out. And I was like, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> um, so with that, um, I think just like with uh, other SWAT guys, I mean, just like SWAT is now, you're not going to fit in until you can do the job. You know, and if you come in, you start showing your worth, coming in, working hard, actually going to the range and, and learning and doing what you're supposed to do, then you'll fit in, you know, at a point when you're contributing to the team. So that took you know, probably about, about a year, you know, about a year before, you know, my shenanigans kind of fell off and I realized that there was some real work to be done. Good. Mm -hmm. There's a little known show that came to town. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I actually, I watched some episodes uh, recently. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had to force myself to watch. I'm just kidding. And, uh, Steve hates talking about it. Oh, yeah. See, I we wanted to get some research mm. on you. And and one of them was <laughs> when you had with a hip injury. So, actually, it's still kind of uh, out of whack. And actually, so it wasn't an injury. It's just that there's a, a misalignment of my mm hip. -hmm. Um it's still kind of out of alignment. It, I just have to repetitively keep correcting it, you know, because unless I have some sort of surgery, it's not going to change. Um, and I don't plan on doing that anytime soon. But um, I wouldn't say just a real injury, just a, an impediment a bit. So when that, that idea for the SWAT show came up, how was that, how was that accepted amongst that group? And they went to your unit, right? Uh, yes, so it started with uh, a unit, and it went to the 40s mostly. Most of the guys were from the 40s. I have zero idea how I got on that show. I was just told, hey, this is going to happen, and they're going to follow you. And I said, yes, sir. I I have no I, – I was, that was 2005, so I've been over there two years, maybe a year and a half, almost two at the time. I had zero say-so in anything. Bob Owens, the lieutenant? Uh, Paul Hill. I had Patricia Paul. Okay, Hill. Okay. She was my lieutenant. Okay, and Owens had moved on. No, no, Owens was still there, but at the time we oh. had the two different units. Okay. So we had two okay. lieutenants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was watching one episode the other day. You're up on a hood of APC, uh, covering up uh, a window. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so bringing I, back memories. Yeah, yeah. I, I was still quite athletic back then, mm -hmm. um, and for whatever thing needed to be done, um, it was like we'll get the new guy to, to get it done. He can cover it off. You look good. Actually, I took a still photo of it. I'll send it to you later. Are you up on the top on that hood? It looks good. Yeah, I, I don't remember that. No, you'll remember after I send it. After you show it. Yeah. So once you start getting a foothold and get more of a reputation as Dre and and the old, just, you know, older guys that were the legends over there and, mm -hmm. and, and the, the hard asses, they start kind of phasing out. What? You when did you how long did you stay there in SWAT at that point? Because Claggett um, left at 07, and then everybody else kind of started. Yeah, I left. I ended up leaving SWAT in uh, 2009. So okay, I was there for uh, most of most of the guys' tenure, um, uh, and 
I, I guess I would say that the work, how you work is where your respect comes from. Um, and SWAT, you, you've got to put in the work that that's, there is no, you can't just be a cool dude and then make it over there. You've got to work, you got to work your butt off. And so, um, once I realized that I, I didn't have a choice, um, and it, my natural abilities, my skill set, that this, this gift of athleticism wasn't going to be enough. Um, you, you got to knuckle down and work. I mean, you really have to work to get that skill. Um, and so that's what I ended up having to do was really put in some time, really put in some hours to uh, to learn how to do the job. And then the respect came along. So what made you want to leave SWAT? At the time, my stepson was 15. Was he 15? About 14, 15, somewhere in there. And he uh, was just being a knucklehead in school. Um, he was, you know, sophomore year of high school, being a little knucklehead. Um, I mean, no different than any other 15-year-old. But the schedule and SWAT was ridiculous. I think the month I left, we had probably 18 or 19 different times that we came in. Like it changed between 4 a.m. and, you know, like 7 p.m. when we would have to make this adjustment. And I was like, I can't, I can't monitor him and get things done with him that needs to be done on this schedule. I mean, it, it was, and that included callbacks or whatever. It was crazy. Um, and so, uh, I just thought it was more important to make sure the family was good over the fun I was having in SWAT. And so that's why I left. You're pretty calm and cool. Was mm -hmm. there an incident that happened over in SWAT that, that rattled you? You can remember? Uh, yes, two. Two more specifically. Uh, one, when Paul Younger saved my life. Uh, sergeant, well, he was a sergeant. He was my sergeant at the time. Uh, actually, three. Uh, Sergeant, uh, so younger saved my life. We were on operation and, uh, I was the new guy. So I was carrying everything up this ladder to a second floor or a third floor of an apartment. And, um, I'm towing everything. Everything's on my back. I got my own gear and I'm walk, uh, walking up the ladder. Team's already set. Last guy up, last guy up. And I'm getting closer to the top. We're at a steep, it's a really bad angle for the ladder to be on. And, as I get closer to the top, the freaking ladder starts pulling away from the damn landing. Yes, we didn't cinch it in and, you know, kind of lock it in or tether it in like smart people. It's like we used to ride on the APC without any tethers on the freeway. Yeah. Because it was cool. Yeah. Looked good. Yeah, it, it was great <laughs> until you hit a bump or something. Mm -hmm. But so we didn't tether that ladder in. So I'm getting to the top. I've got all this gear and the ladder starts falling back. Um, I notice it starts. I, there's nothing I can do because I'm holding the ladder. And I've got all this gear. And there's a fence behind me that we have the bottom of the ladder against. So all I can see is I'm going to fall on this fence and break my back. There's nothing I can do about that. Um, at the very last second, Younger turns around and looks, sees the ladder moving and grabs it, pulls it in, grabs me. And, as I, and I'm like, thank God, because I was up. I, I, I thought it was done. Um, that was one because, again, I felt like I had zero control. Uh, the other one was uh, JT Curtis saving me uh, while I was rappelling because, again, I had zero skill, so I had, didn't know what rappelling was. Um, so I'm at the top of the tower. JT's explaining how to belay, you, you know, how to control yourself on the line. So I go inverted. No, I didn't. I was doing an L, an L on the wall. He was like, all right, cool. Now just turn around, and uh, you can, you know, turn around and face down as long as you keep your hand 
in the same spot. Yeah, well, that wasn't making sense. So I turned around. I let go. I saw the rope in front of me. So I let it go to go reach with the other hand. And JT was on belay. And he was yelled some very choice words and ran back to stop me from falling. Of course, I got some more what the yeah, <laughs> are <right>. you doing? <laughs> um, and so that was probably the third, uh, second thing. The third thing was a uh, hostage rescue on Martell. That bothered me a lot. That's a, that's been a common story that's come up. Misty brought it up, and then Bob Owens brought Chris it up. Chris Webb. Chris Webb. Big one for most, A lot of his episode was, was centered around that. That was very hard. That was a very hard thing. Um, what was the hardest part for you? And where were you, where were you positioned? Whenever we were there, I was on the entry team. Um, okay. I was on the entry team. I was slamming. Um, uh, once we once we were told that this guy was going to pretty much give us a countdown, I was on the entry team, um, slamming the door to get the team in, and um, we wanted some. We wanted to do some other things. We wanted to do some explosive uh, uh, ports, uh, and this is when explosive breaching or energetic breaching was really, really new, kind of right at the, the beginnings of it. Um, but what we knew based on this uh, apartment was that we couldn't, we couldn't get to this guy. We, we saw where he was, but we knew the kid was in another part of the room, another part of the apartment that we couldn't get to. I mean, so we had all sorts of things set up. Uh, there was a, uh, a ramp. There was a team on, at the door. There were snipers up. I mean, it was... It was just a bad deal, and we knew this was going to go bad. So by the time we get the uh, word that it's going down, and he was in the kitchen, uh, kitchen dinette area, uh, we get the go-ahead. We start breaching the door. I start slamming the door. Um, I slam at the door. We didn't know that he put the couch in the way in front of the door, so I'm slamming the door. To get the door just about open, um, and Rich Emberlin was actually going in one. I think Rich was one. Scotty was two something like that um get the door partially open rich steps up he sees the guy right but he can't get in so the guy starts shooting at the door rich is like you know trying to get a shot but couldn't get a position because the door still wasn't open so i yell at rich you know to get out the way so i can hit the door so the guy is shooting as i'm slamming the door um so get the door open rich goes in i think him and scotty end up going in behind the guy and uh, addressing him once he gets into the bedroom, but it was already too late. Um, but that was a, a heck of a moment because there were so many other things I think we could have did. I mean, that was, in my opinion, a failure for our team. Um, it, and that's not opinion. It, it, we failed um, because we didn't use everything in our toolbox, in our toolbox that we could have done. There was a baby. Yep. That there was a victim, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. His son. He had let the uh, the mother and I think a daughter go, or it was the, the mom and another one of his children. But he kept a son. So, yeah, uh, Chris Webb talking in great detail about that, and so did Misty. Um, that and Owens was not out there, but it, everybody was rattled. They even talk about the debrief after, and you know, and you were you were in on that too, right? Yes, sir. Um, you can't make that was not a. When I think a SWAT guy decides to do this job is not because he wants to be himself or herself um, the best that they can be. They want to be able to be utilized to save someone, to do that ultimate thing, which is to protect the person that can't do it themselves. I think, I mean, that's running warrants for dope. Okay, 
it's just practice in my opinion that's just the job that's just work okay it's just work the real the real meat and potatoes of our job is saving someone's life that absolutely cannot do it themselves or the, the situation causes that uh that, that the stakes are so big that only a select few can make this happen that's when it's time to come to work that's when you really get this thing in and if you don't do that you failed what are you here for and that's how the team felt i mean it was that was a tough one for us especially for a child to that what was that kid gonna do yeah yeah that was that was a bad one that was bad um we had some people to some command staff i think that tried to say uh it was okay we did we did okay and i think that that part is what rubbed everyone else wrong right they tried to they didn't say it was success but they tried to give us excuses you know, you guys couldn't have done anything or he was going to do what he was going to do anyway or all of that nonsense that uh, you definitely don't tell a team that's trying to go save a kid. It's like polishing a turd. Yes, absolutely. That's probably the best way to say it. So you left SWAT. Uh, how difficult was the decision? You said that it was. you had some personal reason you wanted to yeah, get I, out of there. Yeah, I left SWAT because, like I said, my son, stepson was uh, <laughs> just being a little fart. Uh, not a bad thing, but I think you have to understand and decide that your family is more important than police work. Um, and so, uh, even though I was having a great career, I realized when it comes to the, to the department, you're not going to, the department's not going to be here for you forever. Your family will. So you have to make that sacrifice. I mean, it, it behooves anyone, any officer to realize that the department is a temporary thing. Your family's going to be there well after the department's gone, well after, you, you know, you retire or whatever it is that you do. Your family's always there. So they're your legacy, not this. Yeah. The department's just a department yeah. or, or a unit or, you know, mm-hmm. a badge or a gun. It's, it's your family's your legacy. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're the ones that are going to look at you <laughs> when, when you're not working, right? When you're not in that place where someone's giving you the data boys. You know, cause SWAT, you can get the data boys. Yeah, hey, good job, man. This, then the other. But your kids, yeah, no, no, it's, it's something different. You can't replace that. Yeah. So family was a reason you left SWAT. Absolutely. You said yeah. that it was like the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I didn't have a child until midway through my career in SWAT. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of use my the excuse that I'm there enough. I'm there enough. Oof. And for me, though. I didn't realize, I guess, how much I was missing out till I actually left mm-hmm. SWAT. And yep. then I saw how much time I was actually spending at home with my wife and my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you see that? Did you, you saw that prior to leaving? or No, I didn't see. I, I can't say that I saw what I was missing. I just realized that the, the effect of things going in the house were just not. My kids weren't responding how I know that I've raised them. And I was like, okay, why is that, right? Um, my son to, to not have his grades be where they're supposed to be, to to not be as disciplined or responsible as he's supposed to be. I'm like, that's uncharacteristic of him. And I'm like, well, why is that? Well, because you're not here, mm. right? And it, that's he's a teenage male feeling himself, so he's going to do what he wants to do, especially if dad's not around. Right. And so... That's all it was to me, and I was like, "That's an easy, that's an easy fix, right?" In, in my opinion. 
So when you left SWAT, where did you go? I went to the mounted unit. Wow. Best job I have ever had. You look good in that damn outfit and those boots. Yeah, tight pants. Seat. Yeah, tight pants, pants yeah. tight boots. Yeah, I saw you out there at the fair. <laughs> did you have experience with horses before that? Zero. Oh, nice. I had never touched a horse prior to that, like ever. They're powerful. They they could literally murder this entire room, they, but they're so horse, beautiful and powerful. They don't care about anybody or anything being there once they decide they want to move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How quick did you adapt to that unit? The, uh, so uh, it was probably six months. So funny story on that on that unit was that um, I applied. Um, I applied sometime in June or July, something like that. June, I think, uh, to the job, and we came. I came over in August, and they were prepping for the state fair. All right, so they're like, okay, cool. The week the school for mounted is seven weeks. It's like, all right, well seven week school uh we'll get you through it and you know it's what they're saying i'm like okay um but we got to prep for the fair so there's not going to be a school during the fair um and then right after the fair you kind of take a break because the hours are so long during the fair um then that rolls right into thanksgiving so you can't really do a school during thanksgiving all right well right after that is christmas so you can't do a school so we'll start your school in january so you're doing several months of shoveling horse shit. That's exactly yeah. what I'm wow. getting to. So I come over in August, and what does a former SWAT guy do between August and January? Work a shovel. Tactical yeah. poop scoop. Yeah, mm-hmm. bro. A shit shoveler. That's what my job was from August to January. <laughs> <laughs> well, at yes. least you got all the se- a lot of pieces of all the seasons in there. <laughs> so- <laughs> so you almost got all of them. Yeah. So I go from being on uh, uh, Dallas SWAT. Yeah, the Dallas SWAT show. Show, you know, premier uh, operator. I, I've been over other countries teaching SWAT stuff to shit shoveler. You're yeah. well rounded though. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it was a uh, it was humbling. It was a very yeah. humbling thing. Um, I never bitched and moaned about it. Didn't say one thing uh, while I was there. But I will say that it was. It was awesome because I didn't have any experience. I had. It was new. Yes, it was new. I had zero experience with horses. I didn't know what I was doing around them. Um, damn sure didn't know how to ride one. So that time between August and January, I actually got to know all the barn stuff. Right, I got to know how to vet a horse. I actually was at the, the vet for a week, learning all the stuff that you would have to do to a horse in case of an emergency, or how to give shots in a muscular, in a vent, uh, ventris, whatever, all of that. So I learned a lot about equine horsemanship um, before I even got on the back of a horse. So by the time I did, all I had to do was learn how to ride, which was still hell. But yeah, I, I they say that that. Mounted school and then uh, the uh, the motor, motor jock school is the two toughest in the department. Right. I don't know about the motor jock school. I've always wanted to take it just to experience yep, it. Yep, just to experience it. But, excuse me, that mounted school is hard, 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 hard. That first week of barebacks is ridiculous. What was the hardest about that? Uh, I, I didn't know how to ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, that, that would be problematic. Yeah, yes. So uh, this is twice now in your career where you've jumped into something pretty major with zero experience and just trying to, to yep. drink from the fire hose. Yes, sir. And so, uh, with again, no no experience. I, I, I'd already been given the tools, right? Shut up, listen, do what you've been told, and practice. All right, got it. 
I mean, that's what I learned in SWAT. So I'll bring that same attitude and same demeanor over here, which is what I did. Well, Mike Keating was a man of very few words, but the words he said you had to listen to. Uh, yeah, you had no choice. And and every other word was usually a four-letter word. word yes. But yeah, he, yeah, no. he was one of those guys that just dropped knowledge on you, and it was like it stuck. packaged very neatly, and here it is. Mm-hmm. And it, when it came to Mikey, he would uh, he'd give you what he thought, and there was not a, a second guess or doubt about what was on his mind. Um, and he would give it to you straight. So, but again, great wisdom for when I got ready to go to Mountain, right? Because I didn't, again, didn't know. Um, there was no issue now about showing up on time because actually I wanted to get there early to learn, right? I, I want to prep my horse so that I can get out there and learn what I need to get done, have the horse ready for what I'm going to ask him to do. Well, right now, one of the big new things for dealing with PTSD and military and first responders, equine therapy. Mm-hmm. And horses are very empathic i mean they very did you get a calm around them because you go from a very high pace uh, high, you know no high pace job you didn't get that no unfortunately not. <laughs> really no uh, it worked no. in reverse oh my God. it was awful i got this horse named tommy he was a caruth um a caruth donation tommy uh the saying was when you get on tommy's back it feels like sitting on a coiled spring wow like he is ready to break in half at all times. And like a was. slinky dog on the Toy Story. Yeah, yes, fifteen hundred pound slinky yeah. dog. <laughs> nothing like the slinky dog. Did nothing zero. Say. Yeah, horrible analogy, Joe. Yes, but my God, <laughs> I had my moment. Brad, that horse was uh, well. So I'll, I'll speak to the therapy part first. The therapy part about a horse or equine therapy is. If you are calm, the horse can be calm. So th- that's a good thing. But if you're if you're up and antsy, the horse is up and antsy. They, they can pick up on that. They really feel that. One of the things I had to realize was that a horse can feel a fly land on it. Right. A fly. Just, sometimes we'll sit there. We don't even know the fly is on it. A horse can feel that. So if a horse can feel a fly land on it, when you're sitting on his back, it can really tell if you're nervous if you're you're off balance, or you're off center, all of this stuff, the horse can sense that. So if he can sense it and he can feel it, then you're probably doing way too much. Um, and that was the biggest thing that I learned over there. So I left SWAT uh, trying to be the tip of the spear. You're not going to be the tip of the spear on a 1,500-pound animal. You're going to have to calm the fuck down. You, you just have to. So... Um, I got over there and got this raging uh, horse that had bucked everyone else in the unit off of its back at some point in time, including myself, uh, several times. Um, and we ended up having a great working relationship. Uh, best, I mean, like I said, best job I've ever had. Um, the reason Mounted was probably the best job I've ever had was because I got to see the other end of policing. I got to see the... Um, we're happy to see you part of policing, which I hadn't seen as what, right? Most of the time it's super critical. It's super incident. Uh, it's a critical incident. If we're there to save someone, it's, uh, we're going into these drug infested areas to go clean it up for you or stop this crime or something like that. And when you're on horseback though, man, people want to just come up and talk to you. And that's not just in the typical parts of the city either it's everywhere the the kids love to come up and see yeah. the horses even the adults the yeah. Ladies, yeah. So, the rock stars yeah i mean you you go from being one of the most hated people on the you know 
in the community to the most loved. They just want to talk to you. And they, they see the, the truck and trailer pull up and they're coming over there just to rub the horse and you can just have a regular conversation. It, it is, it was absolutely amazing. Total well, opposite. Wait, what it was, it is former community policing when you mm-hmm. bring out the horses too, but for crowd control, they have a different tool. And J, JD came and talked, he talked about the Cowboys parade of how mm-hmm. they, they kind of, they helped save the day on that Cowboys parade in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So, with uh, the horses for crowd control, uh, uh, before I go into that, there was one year uh, during the, uh, uh, what was it, the Texas OU stuff in in, uh, in West End, mm-hmm. where they put the segways in front of the horse to try to get some crowd control stuff done. Segways. Yeah, nice. <laughs> in front of the horses. It didn't work out so good. <laughs> segways got taken over. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, the horses are awesome um, because uh, how they're trained, they're just gonna they're gonna move regardless. Um, and so that that was a good thing, a, a crazy tool to realize, right? That you're on the back of this animal, thirteen hundred to seventeen hundred pounds, and it's not going to stop if the rider is asking it to, um, and, which was amazing because again, I didn't know anything about them, so very different. God, that's fascinating. I, I love going out and visiting the barn and, and uh, being around those those animals. So how long did you stay there? Five years. Wow, five years. And then you, did you promote sergeant from there? No. No? no. Where did you go from I there? I went from the mounted unit to the basic academy, DT instructor. Okay. Mm-hmm. What did you like about that? Man. So I, I liked – Giving working out six hours a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I didn't get my run in today. Hey, grab those two classes and let's go yes. run them for five miles. Yes. So my in shapeness was on full because you got to be in shape if you're the DT instructor. You can't be the slacker, right? Yeah. So uh, that was awesome. That was a great job. Uh, wasn't as fun as mounted, but it was a great job because now you're. Uh, I think it was the first time I saw myself transitioning in my career to now I'm giving back. It's not about me just receiving, taking, learning. I'm actually giving something back. I did have to learn how to teach, though, right, because I had been a teacher at this yeah. point. Um, and so now I'm having to learn how to teach in various methods, of various ways of giving people information because everybody doesn't learn the same. So some people are visual, some people are physical, some people are listeners, all of that kind of stuff. So how do you teach the one thing to five different ways of people learning? How do they all get that skill? So, again, it was something different for me to learn how to do in the job, um, but it was very nice giving it away. And then it helped mold in the the future of this department out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So when did you go back to SWAT? As a supervisor, so um, I left the uh, I left the academy, and I was actually on uh, uh, Chief Hall's detail. Um, and between before that, I had taken the test for sergeant. Um, I got promoted. I think the I don't know what round, maybe the third round uh, of uh, sergeant promotions. So I left. Uh, so I stopped working with her and went to Open Records for six months. Um, which is again totally different job because now it's 100 percent administrative, and I have zero skill sets in administration. And you're supervising, you know, majority civilian. Uh, yeah, it was actually about half and half. Was it? There yeah. was, okay, there's a, there was a lot of permanent light duty folk back down there. Yeah, there were 
quite a few permanent light duty mm -hmm. and uh, the unit, the, just the number of staff had decreased. So um, you get this task of reducing all these numbers, 10,000 open records requests. Oh, you brand new sergeant, go ahead and get those numbers down. I said, what? Uh, how? I don't even know what an open record is. What do you, how do I, what, where is it? Right. And I'm thinking it's somewhere we can just go get it. The files are in the computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. It, and they're never ending. No. Oh, yeah. my God. You get hundreds, hundreds of requests per day, like 200 to yeah. 500 requests and, in a day. And they're backed up hundreds, thousands. Thousands. Yeah. Yeah. That unit was backed up thousands of requests, um, not including media. So what did you do? You just grab people on a special assignment to bring them up to supplement your personnel? Or? No. So we, I asked for all of that. You know, no. They said, no, uh, we can't do that. Um, you guys are going to have to find a system to work that out and get those numbers down. So uh, we, we did. I think by the time I, I ended up leaving after six months, uh, we got the number down to close to four or 5,000. So it, I mean, and again, it doesn't stop, right? Because the numbers you still have still come in every day. Yeah, it's just it's a waterfall of. I mean, you, it's like you're in a bucket and you're in a you're in a boat under a waterfall and you're bucketing out water and it's just pouring yeah, in on top yeah, of it. it. It's never ending. Those those people work hard over there. It's I like, it's I like a fifteen hundred pound slinky dog. Yeah. It is, yeah, <laughs> just like that. That's gonna be the title of this episode. Fifteen hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah, fifteen hundred pound slinky, slinky dog. dog. <laughs> so I want to talk to I want to get to where you got back to SWAT as a sergeant how yeah so how was how did that go for you coming back as a as a leader so first of all it was really difficult for him because he had huge <laughs> shoes to fill I mean talk yeah. about walking into a situation where you can't win so yeah so people aren't going to get that joke it, it, I just so, had to get it out Ken Wolverton was the SWAT sergeant over the eight tens and then he went to K9 and there was a vacancy and then it became Andre Taylor as a SWAT sergeant You're for the eight tens, right. oh. Andre showed up before I left. I'd been waiting for like six months to move, <laughs> and he shows up on like a Tuesday and is like, "Hey, when are you going to K9?" And I was like, "I don't know, like two weeks or something." He's like, "Oh, I start tomorrow." And I was, yeah, like, I was like, "What?" I was like, "Cool." Like, <laughs> Here's you the got it. <laughs> so funny story about Kent. Uh, I'm at the academy one day, and this is a sidebar. I'm at the academy one day, and uh, I'm in the bathroom. Right, two guys in the bathroom. I see this guy. He's got a SWAT outfit on. I go, hey, hey, man, what unit are you in? He's like, oh, I'm in a unit. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, who's your sergeant? He's like, what? Uh, who do you work for? He's like, what? What? I mean, what are you talking about? I go, well, I mean, who's your? I mean, who? Who? Where are you at? What do you do? He was like, I am the sergeant. I was like, oh, well, my bad, bro. I I, I didn't know. <laughs> so it it was kind of funny because Kent uh, looked at me like retard. I am a ten, and I was like, I, I didn't know, bro. I, I don't know you. It was a typical experience with Andre, where everybody knows who Andre is, and he's like, I don't have a clue who you are. Like, yeah. I you, run a four three. Here? You work here. What do you do? Yeah, yeah. you run a four three. You, you don't run a four three, do you? No. no. Um, and and you've never been on A and E. Um, just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, you've never stood on now, top please. of a APC hood. Cork. Choke yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, bro, I, I didn't know, bro. I'm sorry. I, I was just saying, what's up? Yeah, he kind of threw me off guard because he was like, who's your sergeant? And I was like, I'm in the jet program. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the sergeant. <laughs> like I, I think I'd been there for a while, too. So it was, uh -huh. really, was kind of, it threw me off. Is it like, who's your sergeant? And I was like, oh, really? This? Dude. Okay, maybe, maybe I'm. Okay. <laughs> I run things over there. I, yeah. I took it as maybe I look really young. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
so I came back uh, to Kent's squad. Um, and initially, right off the bat, did everything wrong. Oh, my God. How so? Oh, well, I came back trying to be an operator. Mm. And uh, the whole squad kind of let me know that I wasn't, right? I mean, I was in shape still. I could pass PT tests. But, um, and I understood what our tactics were because I had the experience, right? Uh, right. I was an operator. Um, but you've got years. Uh, it had been 11 years since I had been in SWAT at that time. So it's not that I didn't have an understanding. Most of the tactics were pretty much the same. But uh, you don't have the same skill set. So I came back trying to be an operator, putting my nose in places that it shouldn't have been. And uh, the squad was quick to let me know. Now, some of the squad mates, it was Danny. You were on that squad. You see a smile on his face. Yeah. Can, can you kind of follow <laughs> that up with your perspective? Well, I, I just say I, if people aren't quite understanding. It's like I don't need a supervisor to do the port and cover and put his rifle in the window and confront sub, uh, suspects. I need the supervisor to be back to tell us when the poll goes and it's safe to do so. So mm-hmm. the port and cover team can move up and do those things, you know, and that's what Sarge just talked about. It's a different level. It's a different level yeah. that, and I, I, I get, it's probably hard to do yeah. that job and then come back and not want to have your fingers in it still, mm-hmm. or even just naturally feel those urges to fill those holes and yep. be part of the team, be a part of the guys. It was a very hard thing. Um, probably one of the hardest things that I've done um, was to realize that you're not that guy, right? You have a job, but that's not it. So do your job. And it's not nearly as fun as the stuff they get to do. Oh, no. Oh, my God. It is not that fun at all. Lots of paperwork. Um, Lieutenant Vernon helped me. Uh, he was my lieutenant at the time. He Great retired. Guy. Yeah, awesome dude. But uh, he gave me this very long-winded story of about uh, – being a Marine, which, again, I have no military experience, so I had no idea what he was talking about. But in short, what he said was that on the battlefield, sergeants are directing fire. They're not shooting. And I was like, okay. Or at least that's the sum of what he was getting at. And he, uh, in short, he was telling me to, to realize what my job is and to direct these guys and not try to get in there and do the job. Um, so it took a little bit, a couple another, a, a few more bumps uh, on the head to try to actually get back and get that bigger picture view and, and realize what my job was. So that was different. Um, yeah. So, right. uh, so this brings into mind another story I have, <laughs> which is we're running a joint operation with the FBI. And this is big to do in a weird circumstance where we are going to run a hit on a house at the same time, FBI is going to hit the house directly across the street we're going to do this all together. It's a big, big dog and pony show. Awful. And I'll just say that team leader for the FBI SWAT team at the time was a subpar leader, probably a subpar operator in these aspects. And so we do the operation, and this guy is known for constantly being up here with the yelling and the, the way he controls and the way he commands. And he actually comes across the street at some time and starts yelling at me about something. And I want to dress this guy down. I want to say some things, but at the same time, my job is supposed to be over here with the team. And I'm trying to pay attention to this. And He's but, distracted. But I want to deal with this guy like, hey, knucklehead, go back over there and deal with We know what we have going on. But our situation is still going on. It's still a little bit chaotic. Mm-hmm. And for once, I was a little bit speechless, which normally I'm not. And all of a sudden, I feel this tap on my shoulder, 
And Dre says, hey, bro, I got this. Go ahead. Go back. And he looks at the guy and says, hey, can I talk to you over here for a second? In the midst of two things going on with this team working this problem over here and this and Dallas Watt working this house, Dre comes up behind and says, I got this. And then pulls the guy aside like, let me talk to you over here for a second. And then took care of that problem. So came in on the team as wanting to be an operator. And then fast forward a little bit and you have Supervisor Dre. Learned. Learning. Still learning. All right. Still learning. Um, it's it's important. I'd say it's uh, pivotal to trust your guys. Right. And um, you have to trust them to do their job. Um, these guys train hard. They work hard. Um, and if you can't trust them to do their job, you're failing as a supervisor. And again, I, that's one of those things I don't. I don't like failure. I don't like failing, especially in work. And then I, I have an understanding of what failure is, what it looks like. And I think that's just, I'm just intolerant to it, just absolutely intolerant to that. So uh, I, I took it kind of hard on myself when I saw myself failing in my job and my, what my responsibilities were. Um, and, and I just wouldn't have it. I just figured something needed to be different. So. You're like, this is my new role, and this is what I need to do be great at this. Because mm-hmm. you've already I – mean, the skills, 11 years in between when you were in SWAT, even though you had all this experience, and any skill is perishable if, if, oh, if you don't, if you don't uh, apply it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're, yeah, as soon as you step on a range with them, you, you realize that you're subpar. Yeah. <laughs> so what you saw <laughs> – SWAT from 2003 up until when you left and, and seeing the culture from what it used to be into what it is now, what, what is the biggest change in culture in that unit that, that you can recognize? I would say what's the same first. Um, what, what is and remains the same is the guy's dedication to save life, right? That has not changed. Um, the vast majority of the team will put themselves in danger to save someone. They will and not only in danger, but they will do all the necessary things to make it happen, right? That's, they're going to go above and beyond. They're going to think outside the box. They're going to go to ex, I mean, extremes to win um, and win within the boundaries that the law provides us, right? Um, that is huge, right? To realize and to come back, to realize that that's not different. I was very happy about that. What is different is the how it's done, right? The how it's done is different, right? Because back then it was do it, do it as I say, do it. And then new guys are going to kind of follow suit. Um, So for instance, like um, when you came over as a new guy back then, you got whatever car you were going to get. There was no question about it, right? You just got a car. I was happy to get a car. New guys now come over and think they're supposed to get a specific kind of car. You're like, FNG, are you kidding me? You barely got here. You don't even know anything. What do you think? What do you mean you think you should have? And so that's different, right? But I think it's just generationally different um, for officers. I mean, that's not just what. No, you go to patrol people immediately want Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday off right out of the mm-hmm. off training. All right. And um, they want a nicer vehicle. They want the Tahoe to take out. 
And we're also seeing the things like, oh, well, I'm not doing so well in this. That's your fault. You're not teaching me good enough. Or you're not yeah. doing a good enough job on training me. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas accountability, um, maybe I need to go work on this a little more on my own, on my own time. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that is pretty big, right? Guys think that they, uh, that is just going to come automatically. Yeah. yeah and it's none hard of it. Hard work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have to put some dedicated time behind it. Um, so that's different. It's not bad. It's just different. Uh, I will say that it doesn't take them long to figure out, though, that you're going to be behind the curve if you don't. One thing I like about I mean, I have a lot of friends in SWAT, uh, you included. And mm-hmm. I just what I always love about SWAT is that the leaders that are over there, the Danny and Matt and, you know, they, they you win. You said you, the, the objective is to win. Mm-hmm. But what I like about that unit is that they even if they win, they try to figure out a way to win better. Oh, yeah. They want to, you know, to, to make it better and to improve. Yeah, that, that's that's yeah. so impressive because so, there's so many people that are satisfied with mediocrity or just just getting by. And I don't in that unit, I don't believe for everything mm-hmm. you've already talked about, that's not a place to just get by or be average. No, you're not going to get a participation award there, not at all. I mean, just because you're present, if you're present only, you're going to be ostracized. I mean, that's just. There's no participation awards. You come in and you work. And when we look at it, we do the job, we find something, we're good, we get it. And you, you say, okay, that was a success. All right. Right after you say that's a success, you ask, where can we improve? Where did I mess it up at? And not only to yourself, but to the guys with you. All right. Because someone else may see you mess up and then that needs to be addressed. Um, because we can do it better. Um, we can be more efficient. We can be um as the old saying goes, smooth is fast. It can be done better. Do you rely now that you're in a different role? Do you rely on your stronger leaders, your ASL, your Kinetis, and other folks underneath you to absolutely uh, to carry you along? Absolutely. Um, I there's no way I could do SWAT stuff without the guys who are there. Um, I I jokingly say they don't need a supervisor, right? Um, and they don't need a supervisor to run an operation, right? I'm there to assist with whatever they need. Um, the plan is generally the guys. The guys come up with the plan. I'm seeing if I see any holes in it or something that they may not have considered. But it's not because these guys can't do the job. I'm, I'm just a, I'm, I'm a bonus. I'm a little piece on the end. You're like a light hand on the steering wheel. Yeah, I'm the old guy in the back. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the old guy in the back. I just, you know, I'll check behind the door. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna get into a different topic. All right, okay. I want to talk about January 2023. Oof. Yeah, we're we're really shifting gears here. Yeah, and you know, and, and what we're gonna talk about is is probably gonna be a surprise to a lot of people, mm-hmm. and um, it's gonna shock a lot of people. But I kind of want it's it's time to open this door and and, and go on through. Time to get into the good stuff. Huh? Yeah, we're getting into it. All right. So in Jan- January 2023, I'm going to describe, it was January 21st, Carmen's birthday, my sweet daughter. Really? Okay. So I'm getting ready for Cop's <laughs> Cop, mm-hmm. getting in my tux and getting ready. And I get an email come across uh, to the wellness unit. I see the name. <laughs> and then I see what's in the email. Mm-hmm. And I got to say that I was stunned. I sit there and I stared at the, I stared at the email for a good 
minute and a half in disbelief. I actually started trying to search the direct the department director to see if there was multiple Andre Taylors in the in the directory, mm. and I could not find any. Yeah. So I replied. I want to kind of I I want you to kind of pick it up before you sent that email okay. and tell the story, and then we'll we'll get into it. All right. So, um, I think I sent that email on Saturday, correct? Saturday. Saturday. So that Friday night, um, I'd gotten off of work and uh, figured I was going to, you know, just relax a little bit before I worked an extra job that evening. Uh, I was supposed to work an extra job. Uh, so I got off Friday, um, came to the house, had myself a, a drink. Um, and I was like, I can have probably one or two drinks, maybe two to three early, kind of let it sit out, drink some water, and be good to go to work. Definitely nowhere near inebriated. Good to go. So I had probably two to three at first, and then I don't know how many I had after that. But by the time I realized I had had more drinks, I definitely couldn't go to my extra job. So I didn't. But since I wasn't able to go to my extra job, I figured I'd just go hang out with some guys. So cool. Went out with a couple of guys I ride motorcycles with. Hung out with those guys because um, they were out drinking. I was like, all right, cool. Hang out. Have a good time with these guys. Um, that was probably probably about 8 o'clock. So I got off at 6, had a couple of drinks, decided, well, I'd had too many to sober up in two hours. I'd had too many to come down from working my job at 1030, and I, I knew it. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to go out and have some drinks. So what rationale that made, I can't tell you. But I realized I couldn't go to work. So go out and have some drinks with these guys. We drink probably till 3, 4 in the morning. And I've got to get back home. And I was like, all right, cool. Normally, you take an Uber. Have somebody drop you off. I drove home. I get home, get in, pass out. I wake up, and I ask myself, what the fuck did you just do? I said, you drove home and knowing you were wasted. Wasted. Um, at that moment, I recognized that I had a problem. I was like, I was going to throw away 24 years or 23 years at the time of my career. It could have happened, right? Because um, I stayed right between Mesquite, Dallas, Seagullville, that lower area, and off of 20 where state troopers come. Um, and this isn't. 2001, 2002, 2003. Back in those days, police stop police. You go, hey, where are you at? Who's your sergeant? They'd even call your supervisor and tell you to, your supervisor to come get you, right? Something like that. I drive your car and they'll drive you. Yeah. There were a bunch of different things that they would do, right? Um, they they call your spouse. They keep you there. Call your spouse. Tell your spouse to come get you, right? They're going to try to help you and regulate it somehow. But um, I drove home. And, um, you know, I didn't cause any damage, but I realized at that point that uh, I was about to throw away my career. Um, I, I didn't think, um, I wasn't thinking. Um, I just, I woke up and realized that I could have just lost everything. Like, I mean, everything that I provided to my kids. My son is still 18, right? He's 18, he's still on his way to, to graduate high school, about to go to college. Had I got stopped by any department, the the current culture is you go to jail. 
that's not even it's not even a doubt, especially finding out you're a police officer, a sergeant in SWAT, and you were driving your car on the public street intoxicated. How many times have we heard that story? So um, it was hard. It was really hard for me at that moment to uh, uh, when I woke up and realized that uh, that I risked everything, uh, kind of everything for my family. Right. Because work is one thing. But not providing for my kids is another. And I, I, I had a real hard time with that. And being a role model. You, I mean, you, you have a reputation, Trey. You may not want to believe that, but you have a reputation mm-hmm. of, of being a badass. And, 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 and you have so many people that look up to you, including your, your kids. I, I get that. I, I, I never try to look at being a role model more so, right? It's just I, do, I just try to do the best I can do. Um, and I don't mind doing that, right? I, I'll do whatever I can to make sure the job is done. But I, I never, I just, even to this day, I don't see myself as a role model, not in that respect. So that uh, <clears throat> that Friday when that incident went down, when you went out, mm-hmm. was, that, was that just that only incident where you realized, oh, like, oh, no. shit, I, I, I got a problem here? Or was this something? Yeah, so, so this is the bigger part, right? Um, this was the... In my opinion, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. I had already been drinking quite a bit. Um, I would say I would clear at least two bottles a week, you know, two bottles of of a pretty good alcohol. I mean, I I wasn't doing box wine like some guys I know. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I I spent about 150 bucks a week on, on liquor. How long has this been going on? Uh, I'd probably say at least the last, what is it, uh, January, probably last six, seven months, or probably, you know, by that time, by the end of January, six, seven months. Um, and I'd say probably so from the summertime and, um, hard to say that summer came around and I, I remember having the thoughts that my son was going into his last year high school, right? My daughter's already graduated. She's in the military. Um, and I'm like, what am I going to do? What, what's next for me? What, where, you know, again, um, work has been important, but not a priority. And so I didn't, um, I, I didn't know. I, I had a hard time filling that hole, right, filling that place. Um, I wasn't doing things that I normally like to do. I used to go roller skating all the time. I really hadn't done that. I'd say maybe there seemed like there was a misguidings. I, I didn't have a direction that I was really going in. You know, being a SWAT supervisor, again, you, you're there. You're like, all right, cool. But these guys are working. I just do my little piece. I'm not really needed, right? All of this other stuff that you, you've got all these things playing in your head, and you're trying to work with it. So I'd have a drink or two or three. And then, you know, I will say this. You end up having a... Uh, a schedule or a bit of a, a, a disciplined way <clears throat> because we're on callback, right? So if you're a primary sergeant, you can't get wasted by any means because the phone can ring at any point in time. And, and again, I'm not going to fail at my job. But if I'm not primary, then I don't necessarily have to be there. So on my months that I'm not primary, oh, it was on. I mean, it was like really on. Um, if it was my month where I'm either uh, – primary or secondary, then it was just light, but it's consistent. 
All right, so that was the problem for me. And I'd say, like I said, it was about a six, seven month span. So by the time I actually drove back from that event, um, I realized that I had been drinking all this time. And I had, you know, flirted with getting things done or, you know, I'm close. But that was that was the that was the deal breaker for me because I risked it all. I don't know if I can speak for everyone on the team, but I I would guess because it was this way for me working with you every day. Mm -hmm. I had no clue. No clue. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, because when you said this. Of course, you go back in your mind and you replay everything. And I'm replaying, man, we just had this call out, and he was he was there, he was fine. Mm -hmm. We had this, we did this. I mean, well, like how it just couldn't wrap, I couldn't wrap my head around about how you were fitting it in. So the the fitting it in is always the, uh, and I've heard some other folks say it. So I'll start it this way, right? This is probably the easiest way to say it. I was a functioning alcoholic, right? Um, I'm not going to say that I was a uh, just absolutely uh, under the table alcoholic, right? My, I still had to maintain my life. I still had to maintain uh, my bills, the, my son's stuff. I still had a job. Um, I still had things to do. So I still felt responsible, but I was drinking regularly, like very regularly. And I had, and I knew that I was responsible for things. So I would just moderate how much of that drinking I could do. I knew specifically I could have three drinks and it gave me a two hour of one water after each drink. Two hours later, I would be 100% sober. Oh, I knew it, it was, it was a done. How big that drink was may have been a little different. Right. And if, again, like I said before, if I was primary, it was two, it, you know, two to three small drinks and a waters, a couple of waters afterwards, because I have to function. My job is to think. So I still have to be clear. Um, my working out keeps me in shape, right? Um, I like to run. Of course, if you're drinking a lot, what do you have? A lot of sugar. What do you need to do? You need to burn it. So you have to run, you know? So there's, a, there's a, not necessarily a methodology, but there's a way to maintain it. There's a way to keep it moving. Um, what, I, what most folks would see and go, oh, Trey, you're in great shape. I knew in my mind, oh, this is in great shape. This is actually kind of trash shape because if I wasn't having all that sugar that I just had the night before, I mean, I'd be super lean, even at almost 50. But I was willing to, you know, have that as a counterbalance. So you basically created a survival system for yourself. You had to. Yeah. And, and, I, and honestly, since we're going to get into more of, uh, of, of this unit and, and uh, helping people with uh, going through rehab, and mm -hmm. I've, I've heard a lot of similar stories, I'll just say. Mm -hmm. And and basically, you have to create your own system that works for you. Because mm -hmm. some of the people that do it, they don't they don't have the workout. Correct. The the work ethic that you have when it comes to working out to to bur have that release. Mm -hmm. So I think the bigger part of it is that people, uh, when you're drinking like that, some folks fall. I guess they give way to the alcohol, right? Um, and they give way to it because it becomes more important than what they think their responsibilities are. That night, the alcohol gave way, and it was more important than my responsibilities. And that was the end of the road for me. Because the realization, the realization that everything could have ended that night was more than I was able to, that more than I was willing to deal with 
and I realized that I couldn't, I didn't know how to stop it, right? Because I've been doing this for six months. How do you stop that? Six, seven months. Once you got to that point of realizing you couldn't stop it after six, seven months, and it was snowballing, clearly. Yes. What were your next steps, your thought process, and what did... Bruh. Yeah, what, what did you <laughs> turn to? I, I know where you eventually turned, but I want you to kind of explain to the listener your thought process and what happened in January of Man, this year. This I've never tough. seen you more uncomfortable than you are right now. Yes. Wow. So I can say this. Um, my thought process. So I woke up from my stupor um, and I realized, again, like I said, I could have lost everything. And the bigger part was I didn't have an answer to fix it, right? So here I am, this guy who normally fixes problems, makes things happen, um, pull himself up by his bootstrap. Just I'm, I can get it done. I couldn't get it done. I just I didn't have it, and I didn't understand why. That's, that, that, to me, was absolutely un, 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 unfathomable that I couldn't stop this. I remember a time... Um, shortly, what was it? Shortly, I was in patrol. Me and a couple of guys. Um, one guy who was in SWAT, now retired. We were patrol guys, and I remember us going out one night. We were drinking a Long Island iced teas. I had five in one night. Five Long Island's top shelf at a very special bar called uh, the. What was it? No. Uh, Neon uh, Cowboy? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no I That's too classic. Yeah. I think it was the Hurricane Bar. Um, now it's Doty's Restaurant, but I think it was called the Hurricane. Um, but I had five top shelf Long Island iced teas. And that night I was like, I didn't even feel like I got buzzed. Now, how do you have five top shelf Long Islands and don't feel like you got buzzed? It's crazy because they made them with five shots apiece. Right. So I realized then, I was like, all right, done. I'm, not, I'm done drinking. And I actually stopped drinking for like two years. Just like, hey, that was, that was it. But this time, I couldn't. And that was the crazy part for me. Why do you think you couldn't stop? What, what was going on in your life? I don't know that it was so much of what was going on in my life, more so than what wasn't. Um, what I later felt, what I later re- realized after going to the treatment center was that I wasn't taking care of me anymore. I wasn't taking care of myself, my heart, my soul. Um, everything was external. And that thought that I had about my son leaving and being that empty nester kind of thing was um, was that it wasn't a void. It was a lack of action. It was a, what are you doing? What are you really doing? And I didn't have an answer at that time. And so now this drinking just kind of continues that hamster wheel. And I still didn't have an answer, still didn't have an answer. So it was, it was pretty tough. I mean, it was, it was unsettling, but, you know, you still got to come and do your job. So that, that next morning, that Saturday, when you clearly <laughs> flew too close to the sun, yeah. right? Yeah. You came to a realization you needed to do something. That morning I realized that I couldn't, that morning I realized I couldn't stop. I didn't, I couldn't stop drinking. Um, and I just risked everything in my career. Uh, I risked everything I'd ever known um, as far as how to make a living. And I said, uh, how do you fix it? And the answer was I couldn't. So I said, well, where do you get some help from? And um, 
I thought about the wellness unit. I was like, well, maybe I need to reach out to those guys. I remembered we had that program uh, started by Chief Garcia that said, hey, if you reach out for assistance before you get in any trouble, before there's an investigation, then we'll help you. So I typed in the uh, wellness unit uh, address on my uh, city phone for the city uh, city email. Boom, I just typed in wellness unit. Address pops right up. I was like, all right, cool. And I sent the, uh, I think I just sent the uh, statement, uh, I think I need some help or something like that along those lines. I don't even remember the words. But what I do know is that as I'm typing it, I'm like, oh, shit, this is going to be fucked up, right? This is going to be bad for me um, because I'm thinking about who I am, what I've done on this department for all this time, and uh, what are folks going to think? You know, how is this really going to work? Or what's what's this going to look like? Who's going to say who's going to respond? <laughs> who? Anybody that responds, I'm pretty much going to know. I'm like, fuck it, send it because you don't have an answer. So I sent it and you responded like three minutes later. Yeah, that was because two, two and a half minutes I was in shock <laughs> and I, I had passed out. I got back, stood back up and gathered myself. I found him in a corner crying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, then I, my then favorite I was, Dallas SWAT yeah, my, <laughs> character, uh, my character, my character, character action yeah. figures. So I, I literally, I remember responding back, and I said, you know, uh, can you come in Monday and uh, let, let's talk about the options? And you responded, "Thanks, bro. The sooner the better." Yep. So what I, I realized at that moment is that uh, number one, uh, my son has a saying: uh, "The cat's out of the bag." Right. That's kind of one of the things he says when things are at its end. It's like, well, the cat's out of the bag. So I kind of thought the same thing. Cat's out of the bag, gigs up. Um, if you, it, once I said I needed help, to me it was a all all hands on deck, full steam ahead. There is no, okay, well, let me rethink this. Nope, it, it's a done deal. So the sooner the better was the train's already left the station, but I can just jump on and go get it. We need a destination. The I, I train need, needs a destination. Yep, it's got to go somewhere. So was that stressful, or was that more of a relief? Fuck, it was stressful as all get out. Yeah, yeah, it was stressful because um, after sending that, I, I realized I'm gonna have to tell everybody, right? Because I know the policy says you can be on administrative leave. It'll be confidential. Yada 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 yada. And I know that's what it says, but how do I? tell my guys I'm gone for 30 days starting Monday or uh, oh Sarge is on administrative leave what the hell how they were, did he do something what, what's this explanation and so in my mind the uh, the truth is just what it's, it's going to be right um, that's uh, again some of that Mike Keating this is what it is so we're going to work with it we're going to deal with it you know so I was like, I told my guys, um, I, well, let me back that up. Saturday, I'm just wallowing all day because I, I got, I, I'd have sent this text. I don't know. I'd sent this email. I don't know what this is going to look like Sunday. This is going to be crazy. This is going to be stupid. I just, Monday, I think is when I sent my guys a message and said, hey, listen, this is what's going on. Yeah, we, you and I talked, we, we talked last week, a little bit offline, kind of prepping for this. Uh this interview and you said that when you first sent it, you hit the send button. Then you thought, okay, 
let's see how long it takes. And if there's a time frame yeah, oh yeah. that it goes by, then oh. you're just going to, you're going to say hell with it. Yeah. Well, I'll say it like this. If an, if an hour had gone by or, you know, 30 minutes to an hour had gone by, nobody said anything. Cool. It's going to be done. Don't worry about it. I'll fix it. I'll find a way to fix it myself. Right. Um, but the fact that that response, your response came like immediately was able to help keep me in the same mindset to let's keep going with fixing this problem. Um, Cause had there been a delay, I promise you, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone forward with it. I'd have been like, ah, that was a misprint. That was a miss sent email. It, it, no, I'm good. So Danny, this, this is for you. Um, whenever he, he talked about telling the team and, and, and we took Gordon earlier and also the detective, uh, that he, he's, he, we're going to get it into him too. Cause he, okay. uh, he has come forward as well. He wants to pay it forward <coughs> that, he had to tell his unit basically because you know you you disappear for five days. Oh, he's vacation. Yep. Well, you're gone a whole month. No matter what you coded on the time card, you when you're in a tight knit unit mm-hmm. like SWAT, especially when you're the leader of a unit, mm-hmm. you have to tell them something. And so, Danny, I think when, that's out of respect. You tell them something. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Danny, whenever you got that uh, a message, the notification. I mean, what? How did that hit you? Oh, probably like you. I cried in the corner. Um, <laughs> no, so you hacked his email. Honestly, just stunned. And like I said, you're just replaying all those things. I was actually almost more shocked about how quickly everyone on the team responded. Mm-hmm. So that was immediate. Dre sent out the message, and guys were firing off messages uh, pretty quick. And I'm I'm still over here kind of processing, you know. Um, so and of course everyone was very supportive. Yep. But uh, I knew they were probably in the same boat I was, where it, they were just stunned as well. But they wanted to make sure they got it out there, like, "Hey, yeah, no, we totally support you and what you're doing, and yep. we'll be here, and nothing will change. This job's still going on, and yep. we'll just wait for you to get back." And yep, everyone basically said, "Go, go take care of business." Take How did that make you feel? Your family re- re- supporting you like that? So, two parts, right? Because two parts of this story is that one when you realize you have a problem and you can't fix it, you have to acknowledge that. Secondly, you have to tell the truth about that because otherwise it's always to yourself, right? You, you kind of keep that in. So letting it out that there was a problem uh, was a bit of a relief. Um, and then to have that support to let them, you know, for guys to be like, listen, all right, cool. I, I hear you. Now go fix it. You know, that's the, what I think I owed the team, right? I owe them the right to go do it, go fix it properly. I was almost a little bit jealous. He's going to be gone for 30 days with no responsibilities. <laughs> yeah. I actually was thinking more about his family and his fiance. You know, they're mm-hmm. kind of out of the loop with this while he goes off, and mm-hmm. they're not quite sure what's going on, and they have to take care of things while he's gone. And so I think I reached out to him and said, hey, you know, make sure yeah. your family has some of our numbers so if something right. happens. Yep. And I did, and make sure everybody was able to be reached out to. Well, right after that, because <clears throat> right after that, I got I got pretty sick after – after that uh, cops cop, and mm-hmm. I was going to join you in the ride out to the the, uh, the facility mm-hmm. uh, that you ended up going to. So you know, Gordon's been on. We talked about the the new alcohol leave policy. So it's it's it it's basically thirty days of it doesn't count your weekend. So it's mm-hmm. thirty days of, of paid time. And I've been on over twenty six years. I've never seen anything like this. No, this kind of support coming from the top. Yes. That's a big deal. You can you imagine this no. policy being in effect when you were in two thousand four SWAT? 
what I can say, if this policy had been in effect, how many officers' jobs would have been saved, right? Absolutely. In 2004, how many officers possibly, right? Because, again, you still have to reach out for that help. The individual still needs to be self-aware and then come forward. You have to, right? And, and I think that's a hard part, too, is you have to acknowledge that you have an issue and that you want to change it. So if you can't do that part, then this policy won't help you. But to say that, hey, listen, I, I want to maintain my job. I want to fix this problem. This policy could have saved a lot of jobs, a lot of lives. So the following week, you mm -hmm. kind of wrapped up some things at home and, and you mm -hmm. you uh, you met with Sergeant Figueroa and <laughs> bruh. So again, now, you know, so you get that the Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday sulking in it um sunday monday tuesday you're sunday monday you're kind of sulking in it tuesday they say hey everything's set up for tuesday we're gonna pick you up um at central or or at the house wherever i mean you wellness unit hey we'll get we'll take you there i was like cool that's what i want just drop me off do whatever you have to do <sighs> did not understand what that was going to look like so here i am again about to take in this adventure uh this next step into what i don't know what's going to be but I'm like, all right, cool, because I got to fix this problem. And like most of the things, I'm stepping into something else to fix a problem. Um, so uh, go to Central, meet there, drop all my stuff off, and let's drive out to uh, Fort Worth. That was the longest ride that I had taken. Like it, was, it seemed like forever. And I'm like, I know where Fort Worth is. Oh, my God, this is taking so long, so long. Can we just get there? And I'm like, you know, you're just sitting in the back just like, oh, my God, this sucks. Because, number one, I don't know what to expect. Number two, all the doubts and questions and I don't know what's being, you know, you can't even worry about what's happening at work. You got to, what's going to happen when I'm gone at the house? Is everybody going to be okay? You know, I'm not even trying to think about my problem because I'm like, everything else is a problem, so to speak. Yeah. You're so used to taking care of so many people and so many things, you cannot take care of yeah. Andre. Yeah, uh, not one part, happened. not one thought on the way there about what are you going to do here while while you're here to take care of yourself. Not one thought about that. So you get to the facility, <laughs> and you go in, and you know that it's you're getting stripped of a lot of things right. and a lot, it literally, you know, and, and figuratively. Mm -hmm. So you go in, you take that step and you go into a world that you have never th thought you would end up in, but you're in there. Can you kind of explain that? Man. So you go there, they tell you no cell phones, um, no communication really, um, for at least the first 10 days. You're not talking to anybody, but people here at the facility. You'll talk to the therapist. There's going to be a counselor or therapist to reach out for your family, so if something happens, they'll let you know. Um, but for the first 10 days, are you going to be in a little detox period if you need that? And then within that 10 days, that detox happens, and then you can make some calls after that. But you're not talking to anybody. You're just going to talk to these folks, these counselors, these therapists, these uh, folks on this Alcoholics Anonymous thing. You're going to sleep in these uncomfortable underwear. They're going to take your clothes. Um, they got to put them in a hot box, make sure you don't have bed bugs. So if yeah. you're in somebody else's clothes the first day, it's uh, it was truly uncomfortable, right? I mean, you get this how I'm about to be a prisoner kind of feel. Um, and, of course, you pull into the facility, and they tell you, oh, you can't leave. I mean, you're here. You, now, you can leave. I mean, you know the truth. You can leave if you want to. 
But if you leave, you haven't fixed your problem and you're on your own time, which I mean, I get that. But you haven't fixed anything. The, the program is not designed for that. Yeah, that was tough. Your, what are your initial thoughts on meeting people there? Like you, you, you go through the, you talked about, there is, there is a mandatory detox period uh, mm-hmm. that we've learned now. Yeah. And, and it varies from person to person. It's yep, just yep. whatever level of alcoholism or, or addiction they have to go through mm-hmm. physically. So they physically can survive. Right. Correct. Uh, so once you get out of that and you start getting into these very strict programs, the, the program itself is built around the 12 step program. Yep. Going back to the 1930s, that's when the big book yep. w- was formed. Yep. So you get there, um, and you, what you you get, you, you're welcome to come into any group conversation, discussion, anything right off the bat. So when you get there, you don't have to isolate unless you choose to isolate yourself. Um, so if you choose to go participate, you can. So I, I participated right off the bat. I said, let me see what's going on because the more I can see and be aware of, hopefully I can figure out how to get out of this thing and get it fixed faster, right? Because that's still my goal. I'm going to get this done and over with. Um, so go downstairs and uh, uh, from the rooms that they have, go downstairs, first group session downstairs. It's like a Bible study. And in my head, I'm like, oh, my God. Bible study. I don't do this Bible crap. Um, so I'm introducing people. I'm, I'm, I'm being introduced to people. People are actually quite friendly. They're, hey, well, some, you know, what's your name? My name is such and such. You know, what are you here for? Blah, blah, blah. So I'm talking to this one guy and uh, he goes, hey, what are you here for? And I was like, uh, alcohol. He goes, okay, well, what do you work? I was like, uh, city of Dallas. He's like, oh, okay, cool. He's like, where? I mean, what, what part of the city? I was like, uh, sanitation. <laughs> he was like oh cool i'll work for the city too i was like really he goes yeah i go you know where do you work at and he goes police department i go you lie he goes no no seriously i work for the police department he goes i go you're kidding me i'm like bro i what for the city of dallas police department he goes yeah i'm a police officer i said bro you gotta be kidding me he goes no no i'm serious i'm a police officer i go bro i work for the police department he goes what's your name again i was like andre he was like dude you're a guy in SWAT, right? And I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> He's like, I'm like, yeah, bro. I was like, dude, you're telling everybody that you're police? He goes, no one cares. Craziest thing that, craziest thing for me ever. He was like, bro, no one cares. There are all sorts of people here. I said, really? He goes, yes. No one cares that you're a police officer. We're all here to fix a problem. And I said, what? He goes, you have a problem. You're just here to fix it. I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, I'm here for alcohol too. I said, oh my God, I did not know. So I'd seen this officer before on the department. Um, he's been on 20 years. Yep. Yeah, I, I'd seen him before. Um, I just didn't, you know, just saw him in passing. It's like, oh, okay, cool. And I was like, dude, I do. I remember seeing you. He goes, oh, yeah, all the time. So you later find out that there's a fireman there. There's a, a engineer there. There are retirees there. I mean, not retirees from our department, but just retired folks. Um, there was a professor, a 30-year dean um, of a university, um, coming through that same facility had been an actor, uh, a news anchor, um, a fireman, if I hadn't said that already. And then, so that's on just your professional side, right? And then you have your straight hardcore guy who was in prison for eight years. He's in this facility. Um, there's a guy who's a manager of a warehouse. He's there. There are all sorts of people. There was a teen. Uh, there's a 19-year-old kid there, freshman in college, 19-year-old kid there. So, I mean, it spanned the full gamut of people. So how, 
What was going through your mind with, with that? I mean, because there's you mentioned somebody there that you would not just get out of the pen that you probably wouldn't be hanging out with. Yeah. And just a variety of people that, you know, we're, as police officers and first responders, we're kind of untrusting of, of outsiders yeah. anyway. So oddly enough, this guy more particularly. So the guy had been in he had been in several different treatment centers, several different treatment centers. This guy had been in prison two times, one stint, six years, another stint. And uh, he talked one day in a discussion and he said, man, I appreciate you saying that you're a police officer. He said, because I thought, you know, police officers were this, that, and the other. He has some descriptive words for it. He goes, but I get to see that you guys are regular people. He said, you know, I just, you go through the same things that we go through. I said, yeah. So the person that was leading the the discussion asked, said, hey, um, so has this facility changed your opinion of people? Now that, you know, since you're an officer, now that you see that you're here amongst all these other folks. I said, no. No, no, it hasn't changed at all. I said I had a trainer named Sam Britling. Uh, I guess that was my second phase. I said he told me one thing about doing this job. He asked me, he said, hey, do you want to know how to do this job? And I said, yes, sir. He said, then treat people like you, like you want to be treated. I said, yes, sir, I can do that. He goes, uh, did you hear what I said? Yes, sir. He said, that's the only way to do this job, treat people like you want to be treated. He said, if you can do that, you'll be fine. Everything else is simple. But just treat people like you want to be treated. So I told the the group leader. Hey, I've always done that. I've treated people like I wanted to be treated. I said, so it's no different for me. I'm not trying to, or I, do I think I'm better than anyone else? I just treat folks like I want to be treated. Like the 12, the 12 steps, one of the big things is first admitting you're not in control of your actions. Oh my God, Brad. These, How hard was that? These you? 12 steps were, the first few steps were absolutely insane, right? Um, when you get to this facility, you have to decide, uh, you're trying to go through this program, right? Going to sit there and they tell you, Hey, the first step is admitting you're an alcoholic, right? You have to admit that you're, Oh, actually let me back up a little bit in this group setting. Everyone introduces himself and says, Hey, uh, I'm such and such alcoholic addict or hi, I'm such, such, I'm an addict. Hi, such, such, I'm an alcoholic. And so the first week and a half, I couldn't say it. I was like, Hey, I'm Andre, right? I'm not going to say I'm an alcoholic. Why is that? Well, I mean, in my head, that was a, a negative connotation. You know, it's not how many alcoholics, do you know, actually do things the right way. Right. And Andre Taylor has always been in control. Andre Taylor has always. Except for when you're up on that ladder one time. Yeah. And, and I and Paul Younger saved me. Yes. You're back on that ladder. <laughs> and, yes. And you're not in control. And that's not where you want to be. In, yes. Know. None of that. All of that was exactly where I didn't want to be and definitely didn't want to admit that I didn't have or could handle whatever I was going through. That was crazy. I, I don't, I can't do it. There's nothing I can't do, quote unquote, right? I can handle all of it. Um, no, I cannot. Um, so this whole week is going by. I'm refusing, like literally refusing to say I'm an alcoholic. Like I just won't say it. I refuse. Um, I was like, I have an alcoholic mentality. And they're like, the guys are looking at me like <laughs> retarded. What do you mean mentality? <laughs> Because I won't say I'm an alcoholic. So it took a little bit. Um, and then we're in the, this big book. And I actually took a picture of this so I could read this because I, I butcher it. Let me see what this picture says. It's a, uh, This is when I realized that I was an alcoholic. It reads, it reads, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely or when drinking, 
you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably an alcoholic. And I was like, well, hell, I'm an alcoholic. I was like, it's written there. This book was written in 1934. How many days into that? About a week and a half. (laughs) Once you finally said those words, how how did that feel? It was conflicted. All right. I, I was conflicted, honestly, because I had a perception of what alcoholics look like or what an alcoholic is. And I've heard the term functioning alcoholic. Right. But you even even in hearing that you think the person's life is at a decimal end. Right. You, you think they're about to kick the bucket or everything's about to come unwrap, come, become unraveled. But I was like, I'm, that's not my life. That's not what it looks like. But, yeah, when I read that page 44, I was like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. You're, look, I'm a, I am a SWAT commander. I am at the high, the most prestigious units on on the, one of the biggest departments. Mm-hmm. I can't be this. Yeah, look at what I've done in my career. Exactly, I can't be an alcoholic. Right. You know, look at what I've done with my family. I can't be an alcoholic. Yeah, I was. Another part I was reading it. It's examining past mistakes. Man, so as you get into these twelve steps, right? Um, the first one is kind of admitting that your life is kind of in disorder or you have a problem, right? It's kind of the, the general thing. Uh, secondly, you have to kind of admit, and again, I say kind of like very specifically, kind of have to admit that there's something bigger than you, whether you want to say it's God, higher power, um, doorknob, whatever it is. You want to kind of admit that there's something greater than you out there. If you can admit that, then the third step is, are you willing to let that greater power, a higher power, whatever you want to call it, are you willing to give an end to that so that they can help you? So that's the first kind of one, two, three out of the 12 steps. And for me, I think those were the hardest, right? Because I've had a, a spiritual background, not necessarily religious. And so I knew who God was to me, um, but I wasn't really communicating with him. A more lack of action on my part, right? I wasn't doing the things that I knew. Um, I wasn't doing the things that I liked. So that was difficult. I didn't have to acknowledge whether there was a high power. I knew it. Um, so it it was strange. So giving over to that, once I could admit that I was an alcoholic, um, then it was, it it became different. Um, so that's one, two, three, four, five, and four, five, six, seven are where this whole house cleaning come in. Um, this is when you decide or the program, as you're walking through these steps, the program kind of goes into this course of, now that you've admitted that there's a problem and you've taken steps to give this power, your, your, um, your understanding, your willingness to this higher power to help you, let's help you get there. And how does that happen? Well, you got to start cleaning house. Cleaning house is simply saying uh, or acknowledging all these things that you resent, all these fears that you have, all of these uh, things that have happened on the, with you personally. Um, admitting number one, writing it on, on paper, right? So you write it down, all these resentments and these resentments are supposed to be and can be anything, anybody, any institute, any persons from your childhood all the way through your current time. Um, you write down your fears, you write down your, uh, what they call sex relations. And that's just not sex like intercourse, but just intimate relationships, male, female, family, whatever it is but how you showed up in those relations, right? How you showed up, um, the person you were at that time. Um, 
And so you go get into this house cleaning, right? And I'm thinking, eh, I don't really resent people. You know, I've treated people fairly well, and I've done this, I've done that. Um, and I don't have many resentments. I really have, like, zero fears, um, more or less, just because I, I don't mind getting in it. And relations, sex relations, I've treated people well, right? So this is, I'm thinking I'm good before I start. I'm thinking I'm good. All right, I can handle this until the program started going. And then I learned that I was intolerant. I was dishonest. I was, um, uh, what was it? Judgmental. I was uh, fearful. Um, and so when you get into this house cleaning, you're doing it with yourself, uh, a mentor, and one of the guides from the program. And you do all of this, you pray before you do it. And in this prayer, you're saying, hey, listen, I'm going to open myself up. I'm going to be honest here about what I have going on inside. And I'm going to do this before these two gentlemen or these people. And they're going to give me an honest look and an honest say of how I showed up in all these situations. Bruh, it was absolutely awful. So in short, it essentially said that I showed up as an asshole, judgmental to people, um, 1940s style person, 1950s style person, um, intolerant of others, judgmental of others, fearful of their concerns, fearful of my concerns toward them. Um, those were probably the biggest. And I, I never would have thought that. But when you're telling your story to people and they're listening for who you are and how you showed up, it's not your perspective. And so that was different, right? Um, so go through all of this. You do this in a, in a particular time frame, and you also have this therapist to go along with you. Right. So this therapist is assigned to you. You see them every week. The therapist says, Hey, how's your sessions been going? You know, how do you, how you been dealing with it? And I'm like, eh, I'm okay. You know, no, no issues. I'm good. So the therapist gets to talk. And I, I guess the first time we met, we probably stared at each other for about 40 minutes of an hour session. Right. Because, you know, there just wasn't much going along there. I just couldn't get much out of me um, until uh, he asked one day, he goes, well, what do you do to take care of yourself? And I said, I, what are you talking about? I'm in great shape. Look, look at this guy. I right? mean, right. I'm good. He goes, no, what do you do to take care of your insides? And I said, um, he's, I, I didn't have an answer. So he looked at me, and said, well, what did you used to do? And it was like a light bulb. Right. I was like, I, I used to I used to work on old cars. I used to go roller skating. I used to just go outside and do stuff. I used to do this. I used to do that. I used to do so much stuff. He was like, well, why did you stop? Didn't have an answer. Right. What I knew part of why I stopped was I was drinking. Right. Can't go roller skating and drink. Well, you can. It's not going to be very fun. It won't end well. Potentially. <laughs> yeah, not very well. Uh, I'm not going to work on my car and and drink. I, I never did. Right. Because I'm, I'm fixing a problem. Right. So the therapist gets, you know, get, finally comes around. He goes, you know, you have a problem. And I was like, OK, cool. What is it? I, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm in a treatment facility. What? Yeah, I, I got that. He goes, no, you have a self-care problem. You're not taking care of yourself. Bruh, I, it was absolutely crazy. I was like, what? Wow. Never thought about it. Not thinking, you know, thinking about everything and everyone else and all other situations, not taking care of myself at all. It was 
that was like a watershed moment for you in that and sitting there with that it was therapist. It, it was it was a hard pill to swallow right because in my in my head my job is to take care of others take care of people take care of things but you can't do that until you take care of yourself i i was talking to sean about the the um the steps and one of them i guess you had to do something for someone else throughout the day right and man and yes so there's the 10th step so you go through you go through there's one two three you go through four five six seven um eight nine are about the same as kind of your amends to those people that you wronged then you get to step 10 and it's service right step 10 is as you have a problem you have an issue you talk with a mentor about it and they tell you how you showed up on that particular problem issue or whatever it is so i'll give a quick description of one of mine right so you get this phone call that you can have once a week after you've been there 10 days 15 minutes you only get a 15 minute call you can call whoever is on your list but you can only call two people so you can separate that call for seven and a half minutes for each person cool so as long as you don't get any infractions within that week or up to three infractions you can make that call well I think I had one infraction because I was late to a, a session. If you showed up at 805. Yeah, yeah, 805. I showed up, right? So I got an infraction for that. And um, I left a cup over in like a general area, right? So uh, got another infraction. I was like, cool. All right, cool. I got two, but I'm good to go. I understand it. Not a problem. Nothing else is going to happen, right? So put my name on the list to make my calls because you got to put your name on this list. So I get ready, excuse me, I get ready to make my call and step up to the uh, little counselor mentor guy and I go, all right, I'm ready to make my call. He goes, hey, uh, there's a problem. Uh, You're not going to be able to make your call today. And I said, what? He goes, oh, you got three infractions. I said, "Uh, are you kidding me? No, uh, I was only aware of possibly two, right? Because I know I left my cup. I know I was late. I don't know of a third one. So well, we've already called. We've already called the assistant director on a Sunday, and verified that you have three infractions, so you can't make your call. So, I look at this dude and I go, "Yes, sir," but I am flaming on the inside. I am pissed. I'm just mad as all get out. But I'm respectful, right? I'm professional. I understand. You know the rules are the rules. So I go over to the workout room. And I sling around as much weight as I possibly can, right? I am trying to destroy, like, th- th- this workout. I'm still hot. I mean, I am still angry. So I come out of there. I was in there about 45 minutes. Heartbreak. I mean, I was still mad as I, as I was when I walked in. So I walk out, and the same guy that we were talking about that who had been in prison for eight years, he comes out of one of the dorm rooms, and I'm walking on the track because I'm trying to calm down. He goes, hey, you could? I go, eh, not really. And then another pivotal moment, right? Because normally I don't share what I've got going on, right? So for me to say to him, not really, was a change, right? Because otherwise I'd have been like, no, I'm good, bro, and I'm going to keep on moving. But I was like, you have to adjust this thing, right? So I, did the, I said, not really. He goes, I'll walk with you. So walking with him, and he says, uh, hey, so what's going on? So I tell him the whole story and I tell him I'm pissed because no one had told me I had three infractions. 
So he's like, Dre, right now you're showing up kind of intolerant. I was like, bruh, it's not intolerant. I was not informed. No, he goes, okay, well, you know what the rules are. I still wasn't informed. He goes, and you know where you're at. He said, now you're being judgmental. Now you're being, uh, uh, what else he said? He said something else. I forgot what else he said because I was looking at him crazy then, right? He goes, and I'm fearful because you're looking at me this way. And I was like, bro, we're good, right? Um, he just had the Rolodex of buzzwords. Yeah. Oh, bro. Yeah. And he wasn't in my session, right? He, he wasn't in that session when I was doing my house cleaning, housekeeping, right? And so we walk around. I told him, uh, I told him, I was like, man, I'm not doing a 10-step. I'm just not 10-stepping this because now I'm, I'm, I'm mad. And, and because I'm mad at the system, as it, it's set up, I'm not going to do what the system says to do. So he goes, uh, eh, I mean, I get, I understand what you feel. I understand why you won't do it. I said, all right, cool. So he goes, we made just one lap. So all that talking happened in one lap. He goes off. I go back to my dorm room. I pick up a piece of paper, and it's the 10-step paper right in the front of my folder. I said, do you know what? I'm going to do this 10-step, right? So I go, go grab my mentor. I say, hey, listen, I need 10-step real quick. 10 step is simply saying you have a problem. They show you, they tell you how you showed up. Then you perform an act of service. All right, cool. So tell him what's going on. He was like, yeah, you're being judgmental, intolerant, um, uh, delusional, uh, delusional. You're delusional at the moment. Um, he goes, so, so did you pray about it? And I was like, no, I didn't. He goes, well, you should have prayed about it first. <laughs> All right. So he leaves, I pray about it and I go outside and I go pick up dog shit because they had four dogs. So that was my act of service. I went and picked up the dog shit that was outside, and it was a lot of it. And after that, man, I felt so much better. It was absolutely insane that the act of service was because I was still hot, tolerant, you know, hot and intolerant of the moment. But talking to the people, which I normally hadn't done, was a little bit of ease, and it wasn't until I started doing something that it got better. So by the time I was done, of course, I was still not pleased by not having my phone call because on top of all of that, the uh, the phone call was the day after my daughter's birthday. Mm. So I was going to talk to her for her, you know, essentially for her birthday the day after. And uh, so then I later found out. Um, so anyway, all of that to say um, the, the program works, that understanding how those acts of service that help you and in turn helping uh, someone else or helping something else makes it better. Um, but I later found out that I got a third uh, infraction for not participating in a, in a class or group or session or something like that. Forgot about that one, huh? No. I just wasn't told about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think it was more of a, of a programming situation. Yeah, of course. To work it. but There's yeah. four structures in there. It, yeah. yeah. I think it was a, a specific design, but you know, again, my lack of participation, and you know, I'll, I'll own it for whatever it was at the point, um, still got me to a place where I had to do something different, do something better. Well, one of the reasons you're coming on this this podcast is to help others potentially, and and mm-hmm. and speaking about your your experience and your story, uh, I know it's going to reach others. It's I, I know it will, and and there's going to be a lot of people that it reaches that are that are non-first responder mm-hmm. and uh, we may never know. Right. But that, and the, but this is going to be out there forever and it's, and hopefully that somebody will pick it up, pick up this and you, you're 
acts of service will continue long after. I hope so. Right. So I believe it will. Um, again, it's kind of like not seeing yourself as a role model. I, uh, it, it's not what the act of service is, as long as you perform and you do it, right? Because in my mind, helping anyone and however I can do that is awesome. And, and helping anyone is going to help me, right? I will feel better. I am better because I can help someone else. What did you take most away? Man, so the biggest thing I took away from, the biggest thing I took away from this program um, was uh, – three things, right? Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is, if I had to sum it up, a spiritual program of action right off the bat. Um, they had several sayings written all over the place. One was like, uh, it's, uh, it's not impossible. The word itself says I'm possible, right? And little stuff like that. Well, they had this one saying, and they said uh, three things. Uh, sir, uh, trust God, clean house, serve, help others. To me, that's exactly what this program does. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous as a program is. If you can learn to trust God or your higher power or whatever it is that you want to call it, clean house, uh, simply taking care of yourself, getting out all the negative things, talking to people, letting go of whatever it is that you have holding on to you um, that keeps you in your head. Right. Sometimes when you're when you're drinking or you're in this cycle you think it makes sense, but that's when you need someone else to tell you how you're showing up, right? That's part of the cleaning house. You have to accept this is what your house looks like. You can get that part done and then help others, right? Because that's the part, that's the true benefit. Help someone else serve other people and whatever that looks like in whatever way that can happen, you'll be better for it. Do you believe you, you spent, over a month with these, these folks, mm-hmm. almost strangers, even mm-hmm. even the other officers that, that were in there, mm-hmm. um, and I'll come out and say that we this policy has been in effect for six months, and we've had we've had eight eight uh, people, including yourself, mm-hmm. go into this, you uh, partake in this policy. Did you make some friends in there? That My you, goodness, yes. Okay, man, I've there are people in Detroit. Um, now in Detroit, Arkansas, Georgia, a uh, guy in Washington that we keep in regular contact now just because we understood and went through this program together. Realizing that this program is a lot more than just wordplay, right? This thing was designed and brought together in 1930, it talked about in 34, um, put in a book in 1939. This thing has been around a long time, and it just so happens it has some proven things that work in it. Um, I would say at its core, it's a good thing for just regular life, not just an alcoholic or drug addict. It has life principles. I mean, imagine if people just decided that they wanted to serve others regularly. I mean, everyone would be better for it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to kind of wrap it up as far as when you – we're getting close to exiting <laughs> and, and that feeling you had whenever that last few days of being in there amongst new friends, mm-hmm. hellacious structure. Mm-hmm. How did that feel to you? So a little bit of a, a bittersweet kind of thing, right? So happy to get the hell out of there. Um, 
but try not to, as they call it, future trip about what it's going to look like, right? Because that's also a, a character flaw, right? You're, you're not staying in the present moment. You're thinking about something you absolutely cannot control, something that you don't know is going to happen. So it's called future tripping. So I was just trying to stay present, you know, trying not to anticipate what problems were going to be, uh, what it was going to look like. Just stay in this moment so that I could just handle this moment. Um, but very ready to leave, like super ready to leave. Yeah, I want to describe your exit. So uh, Sergeant Fig and I, we, we showed up that morning <laughs> to come and pick you up. And we kind of, there, there's a, a long bridge that mm -hmm. kind of uh, goes over a, a stream uh, that goes into the facility. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, in my view, we stayed on one side and I saw you and then I guess all of your, your, uh, your new, you know, 30 day family fan club, yeah. his fan, fan club, club. Was, was waiting there. <laughs> They're in a circle and you were going around and you were giving hugs and handshakes and, and, and exchanging. It, it was really, it was really nice to see from my view. Mm -hmm. And then when you started walking towards me, the cheering, mm. how'd you feel? So that, that was difficult for me. I, it oddly, right? Because I, I told those guys I wasn't going to participate in the bridge ceremony. That's what they call it, the bridge ceremony. I said, I'm not doing that nonsense. I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not doing this trash. I, <laughs> let me do. Let me walk out of here. Let me yeah. walk out of here. Let me, I did my work. Let me leave, right? I don't, I'm not a ceremony kind of guy. I, I just, it's not for me. Um, and my good friend now, uh, the guy from Detroit, was like, do I consider this an act of service? Yes. Brad had not for crossed. For everyone else. Had yeah. not they crossed. They wanted to cheer you. It did not cross my mind. Everything for days, right? I had been going back and forth with this. You thought it was all about you, but it was for others. I did. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm like, I'm not participating in this trash. And so he said, Dre, consider it an act of service. And I was like, wow. Didn't, I didn't even imagine it. And so when he said that, I was like, all right, cool. Consider it done, right? Get out of your own headspace. So, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it, it was it was a moving uh, experience for me just being on the other side of that bridge and mm -hmm. came over, give you a nice handshake and hug, and mm -hmm. you were ready to get in the car and get the hell out of there. I was, yeah, I was yeah. ready to go. Um, ready to go. Actually, I was ready to go to actually do some good work, though, right? I, I was it wasn't because I, well, number one, the food was not as fun as you yeah. think it is. No, it, it, no. I, I didn't think it would be. No, it was not. Um, it wasn't bad, but it was not good. Um, but I was ready to serve, right? Uh, I mean, I didn't get into this profession for service, you know, to serve and protect. I came here because I needed a job. Um, I understand why people do serve, though. All right. I can get it. I absolutely get saying, hey, you know what? I want to help. Um, and that's why I'm here at this point, right? I really hope that I can help a bunch of officers. I really hope that I can, I'm willing to do whatever that looks like to help because it's a struggle. I mean, it, it's, it can be difficult and it, it's not, the help's not far. Um, and whatever I can do to make that happen, man, I'm so into it. Trust God, clean house, help or serve others. Yep. It's easy. And where did you, when you got back to work, mm -hmm. You went right back into your unit, yep. back to your family, right? Yep. 
right back on call. Right back on call. <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and all the crappy text messages you get from <laughs> nine or ten different guys blowing up your phone at once. You didn't get buried somewhere. No. That, and that's that's what the, when this policy came out, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Because back in the 90s and early 2000s, you, you, yeah. you would be put probably hidden somewhere. Yeah, you're going to be hidden right. dispatch or it, some station somewhere. And that would that potentially could hinder your yep your uh, your recovery yeah your or your willingness to participate right all right yep um but yes so came back um and even more importantly no i realized no one from the wellness unit said anything about my deal i told my guys and i told my com- my chain of command <clears throat> but if i hadn't said anything nothing would have been said which was awesome right because some people may have that fear, right? That I'm going to be talked about or the wellness unit is going to leak that or leak it out or no. You know, when I asked about, how, hey, how does this admin leave look? It goes, oh, no, we just call them and tell them you're on admin leave. That's it. And my lieutenant was like, yeah, they didn't say anything. They just said put you on admin leave. So I'm, I'm down here in this office quite a bit. So mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I'm like a part-time wellness unit and I, nobody would tell me anything. Like, I, I even dug around a little bit, yeah. to be honest, because <laughs> right. there was things going on, and I was like, what, what's happening? Where? What? Like, who what? Mm-hmm. Nobody would say a word, and they didn't tell me to shut up or anything. They were just like, we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, wow, that's that's exactly what needs to happen to make this successful. I agree. I mean, it, it was it was a great thing. Yeah, Kent's kind of like the the, uh, the wellness unit shelter dog. He comes around occasionally <laughs> with the back door. We, kind of, we set a bowl out. <laughs> yeah, we set a bowl out for him. But, but yeah, that, that – confidentiality is paramount mm-hmm. with this and and so far I, i'm not sure of everybody that's got, that's entered i know that the uh first five people that have entered have had a discussion with their unit and basically told them mm-hmm. this is what i'm doing i hope you support me and they and, and i believe they have yep. you know um would you recommend if there's people out there struggling and they are we know they are oh yes they are would you recommend this uh, this facility or this program to get better yes so there are a lot of offices i know suffering all right all over the country not just not just our department um but yes i would absolutely recommend i would recommend this facility i would recommend this program i think there are some ways that we can do it better right i think and again i guess that's the swat me right we're going to find a better way, a more effective way to get this done. Um, because I don't think everyone is at the place where they have to go to a treatment facility. I think there are some things that can be put in place for um, that can help. But the wellness unit is 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 the core of that. And I think what, what you guys are doing is so awesome, and it will help a lot of officers. Someone's, they just have to reach out, right? There are people here willing to help. Just reach out seek that help um all the fears that they have aren't really fears they aren't really there it's just in your head so if they can get past that yes i would recommend that facility if they need it recommend this unit because it's going to help them regardless but if someone's struggling just make that call send that text send that email reach out to somebody so that you can get that help being vulnerable is is difficult but it's it's worth it it's essential and necessary, and it's the biggest relief off of your heart. You have to be vulnerable. And again, I'm definitely something I wasn't used to. But you have to do that part. That's the, probably the hardest thing for police to do, and definitely A-type personality 
police is to make yourself exposed. What's next for uh, Andre Taylor and his career and life? So career. Um, career, I'm on a list for lieutenant. Um, and again, part of this thing is depending on how that looks. Um, I actually got boarded last week. So we'll see what number they get to. Um, going into a wellness unit program to this treatment center did not affect that at all. So if, the, the, if they get to my number, I can still get promoted unaffected um just like i came back to work unaffected you know just better right better person overall um as far as uh, the rest of the career uh whatever comes down the pipe i am here to help um i'd like to be able to put myself in a better position uh, to help folks that need it oh my god because it, whatever that looks like right um i came back and uh Omar asked if I wanted to go to a uh, peer support class. I was like, I'll take it. Whatever else you need me to do, bro, I'll take it. I'm in. If someone needed me, I'm in. Um, and I would say I was definitely supportive of people and what we needed. Like, I mean, even on the team. Hey, what do you need? I mean, I got you. But this is bigger, in my opinion. So I don't know what the career looks like. You know, I five years down the line, I don't know. But I'm here to help. Yeah, we are actually we, we're going to put together a uh, honestly, we've had so many people involved with this. Uh, we're going to put together a peer support group that just targets the people with alcohol issues, mm -hmm. because who better to who better to learn from and listen to is people that experience it themselves, because mm -hmm. I could I could read I could read all about it. I could watch shows about it, but I wasn't sitting in there. Yeah. getting stripped down by my peers and been becoming and been looking in the mirror and not seeing what I liked. It's a hard mirror to face, right? It, it, when people, when people who you have to trust people to be honest, right? Most folks don't want to be honest. Like I didn't want to be honest and say I was an alcoholic, but then how honest was I looking at myself when someone says, Hey, you're judgmental too. You're delusional for thinking that you can just hold on to that. I'm like, I don't want to hear that. But is it the truth? Right. And how many officers want to hear that uncomfortable truth? And we, we got to have that. I mean, we, we do it to people all the time. Officers go out on patrol and they talk to people and they tell them the truth of their situations. But then we don't want to accept our own because we're the ones supposed to fix the problems. So, yeah, it's a strange thing, but we have to do that, too. Sergeant, um, I can't thank you enough for coming on here. For one, having the courage to s hit send on that email mm -hmm. and then reply. And then I really, you, dealing with these situations, you never know peep the follow-up that is required after you agree to something to come through, right? Yeah, very much. Uh, and that's, that's a big step. You've taken several big steps. Now your mission now is to help others. You've always, had, you've always done acts of service. Mm -hmm. But once you realize that you could even go take that even a higher level, you're willing to do that. I can't thank you enough for for all that you've done in your career. You're very respected. You're very well liked, and and it's it's very admirable for you to 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 go through this process and then want to pay it forward. Thank you so much. Thank you, bro, because you responded. <laughs> so I'm I'm sitting on the same side of the table as you. And I can see you a little bit better than these guys can. Your body composition, your, your composure, 
when you were talking about before treatment, I told you I've never seen you more uncomfortable. Like you were literally gripping the chair yeah. and, and you were super tense. But as soon as you started talking about the 12 steps, you just completely relaxed and, and fell right back into to it appeared that it was internalized in you. Oh. Like you were comfortable talking about the steps. It's it's transforming. I, I, I can't lie about it. It's well, transforming. I appreciate that. You know, being open and, and being vulnerable is not comfortable for people, especially someone in your position. Um, so thank you for doing that. And I mean, just trying to pay it forward, like we talked about, starting a, a group and talking to people. I think that's going to reap huge dividends. So keep going. Thank you, sir. We'll do it. Like everybody said, we all know you. We've all known each other for a while, and you know you're you're such a great person. And thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Um, it's inspiring. You know, it makes me want to go out there and serve serve as well, more than more so than I do now. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for putting in the work, Sarge. Yes, sir. And throughout your entire career, being the person you are, being genuine, mm-hmm. putting in the work, and now even more so, leading by an example. You are appreciated on this department. Right, it's all right. Appreciate you, sir. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs., hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun I'll never give up on me.